Ma said she saw a ghost once. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Crew Sharp Objects Series Review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino, and we are so excited to be covering this series. Created by Marty Noxon, directed by Jean-Marc Vallée. This was an American psychological thriller limited HBO TV series based on Gillian Flynn's debut novel of the same name. It follows Camille Preaker, an emotionally troubled reporter who returns to her hometown to cover the murder of two young girls which barely even scratches the surface. There is so much to talk about here. So we should say right off the top, this is different than the coverage we normally do. We are obviously not going episode by episode now that the series is done. We are just going to do one episode that covers the entire Sharp Objects miniseries episodes one through eight. So with that being said, spoilers are coming. Spoilers ahead for the entire show and the book as well. Make sure you've watched everything. If you haven't, turn it off and then come back when you're done. I'm actually shocked I didn't realize this was Gillian Flynn's debut novel. We've also seen the movie adaptation of Dark Places and, of course, the movie Gone Girl. So we are big fans. No surprise. I had read the book prior to this. It wasn't a complete surprise for me. I had forgotten a lot of the details, though, and I still felt there was an incredible amount of intrigue and suspense, even knowing the broad picture of what was going to happen. I was also really excited to see you go through trying to figure out who had done it, your reactions to the episodes, the characters. The ending definitely was a slam dunk for me. Mid-season, I was having difficulty staying on board, but I was riding off of your excitement. There was some episodes where I felt like they were stretching it as much as possible. And they were trying to fool you a little bit. Look here, look here. But in the end of the episode, I'd be like, what really happened? Why, why did we just watch that? Do you think that was around the point where you started to realize maybe this isn't so much of a whodunit story and trying to figure out who is the murderer as much as what's going on inside of this family, the overall larger themes that we're going to talk about? Yeah, maybe kind of shifted gears and tipped its hat a little bit. Yes, you're going to want to know who did it, but there's going to be bigger questions to answer by the time we're done with this. The critics are receiving it positively. IMDb is giving it an 8.3, Rotten Tomatoes a 93%. They say Sharp Objects is a nearly unbearably slow burn. It maintains its grip with an unshakably grim atmosphere and an outstanding cast led by the superb Amy Adams. There's so many things to love about this, starting with Jean-Marc Vallée, who is directing the artistic quality of the way he tells the big story, as well as each individual shot. What amazed me was that, unsurprisingly, the book is from a first-person perspective, telling the story through Camille Preaker, your inside of her mind. She is sort of the unreliable narrator, but it's more than that. It's a lot about digging into her trauma. It's not just done through flashbacks, but when memories are triggered, why things come up from her, the limited focus that we see through her, in addition to her being an alcoholic, maybe losing points of time, 
it's very hard to track. It's a very internal kind of perspective. And I think Valet did an incredible job translating that to TV. In fact, I don't know I've ever seen it done like that before. Yeah, this was done in many ways. One of the more obvious ways, his ability to do quick clips of us seeing from a first-person point of view, almost as if you are that person. Those same clips also helped create confusion or emotion. This whole season made me feel uncomfortable every minute of every episode, starting from the beginning title sequence from the different music that they play every time or the different iterations of the same song. It was either very oldy, old-timey sounding and just sounded dreary and depressing. The clips during the opening titles made you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, these there's these bizarre images, spiders, bits of blood. It's You're right, intense from moment one. And it's going to be hard to talk about. I'm so upbeat and I'm saying, oh, I'm so exciting. This is so interesting. They're really serious, dark topics that we're talking about, but I think that they're handled with a lot of care. Even when they're doing that, they do justice to everything Gillian Flynn was writing about. I think that was one of my main concerns was how were they going to approach some of that? About the story, Flynn says, it deals with women's anger and rage. Each of the three women represents a different era of feminism and how that affects their behavior. I wanted to write about women who grew up in the 50s and 60s who were supposed to be primary caregivers and nurturers, such as Adora. With Camille, she was of the first to be brought up under the new freedom that feminism was fighting for, but was still very new and tenuous. And then Amma, who's of the new social media generation. But no matter how different they are, they all have one thing in common. There's a lot of raising up of female qualities right now because we're waking up to the ways in which women are marginalized people who have been oppressed. But one of the next levels of that is acknowledging our faults and humanness. So much more than the murder mystery of who killed Anne Nash and Natalie Keene is the story of what's happened in this family from Adora's mother, and I can't even remember her name now, to Adora, to Camille and Amma. How does the trauma, the abuse, the mental illness affect each of them? How does that manifest? Do they wind up turning it inward and hurting themselves, such as Camille does with her cutting her self-injurious behavior, her alcoholism, or do they turn it outwards in a rage like Amma does with violence and murder? Does it manifest as a mental illness, as in Adora with her Munchausen by proxy, or factitious disorder imposed upon another? That's the actual DSM term for it. We just commonly call it Munchausen, but we'll get into what that means because I know that creates a lot of confusion as it relates to the storyline. Does she know she's hurting these kids? Is she intent upon killing them? What is her problem? There is so much wrapped up in that. And we find out from the very beginning, it's going to be central to what we're watching here. That being said, this story would have fallen completely flat if you didn't have the amazing acting talents, primarily Amy Adams and Patricia Clarkson. Also, Eliza Scanlon. She did amazing. She, you know, she wasn't supposed to be liked and her acting made it impossible to like her. Yeah, she had to walk that fine line though, right? Because it couldn't be too up front and center that right. that's what was going on with her. So she did a good job with that. Absolutely. And you know, while Valet stayed kind of focused mostly on Camille's perspective, he did open it up a little bit further than we had in the book, which is another nice touch. To see into some of the other characters' backstories a little bit more in depth, I'm thinking of Alan being number one, somebody that we got more insight into in the TV show. Um that created more problems and questions than anything, but it was good to just kind of widen the lens a bit. 
So we're going to get into all that and more. We're going to talk some fun facts. We'll go through each of our main characters, a brief summary of the episodes one through eight, but just to kind of refresh our memory so we can hit on the high points of what we enjoyed about it, and then get into our ratings, differences, book to TV, and about the psychology of what's underneath this story. Well, before we get super serious, let's start off with some fun stuff. Jason, how about some trivia? Let's do it. When have Amy Adams and Chris Messina starred together before? So our main character of Camille and our Kansas City detective. I have no idea. No, you don't remember it? No. A movie called Julie and Julia, 2009. Amy Adams decides she wants to follow Julia Child's cooking recipes, and she starts going through the entire cookbook and doing a blog about it. Oh. Do you remember that? It was kind of like a fun romantic comedy. He was the husband. Oh. So not their first time on screen together. Number two, how long did it take to film this show? Well, I feel like there wasn't any throwout scenes as far as narration. Every scene, even if I felt like it probably is a throwout scene in regards to the main storyline, I felt like every scene, if I was an actor or actress there, would be pretty intense and take some hours to do. I mean, that party episode must have taken a couple of days. Calhoun Day. So... I'm going to say a few months. Correct. 90 days. So three months, although Amy Adams filmed her part in 65 days due to some scheduling problems. And she had the most amount of scenes of anyone. Now keep in mind, this is only eight episodes. So that's pretty long for eight episodes. Yeah, eight episodes. I mean, they are 45, 55, I think 55 minutes each. Yeah, they are long. And there's so much packed into there. Also, if you listen to Valet describe the way it was filmed, they almost never knew what sequence are we filming in, what's coming now. It was very kind of spontaneous. He wanted to feel genuine that it was going in the direction it needed to go. The camera's here, now the camera's over here. Camille is looking in this direction, so we should follow her gaze and now turn to that thing. He has a whole other process that sounds very interesting if you go listen to some of those interviews. And finally, number three, do you know where the episode titles come from? From what she puts on her body. Correct. They are all words that she has carved into her skin. Vanish, dirt, fix, ripe, closer, cherry, falling, milk. Of course, there's a lot more words than that too, but these all have some deeper symbolism that's going to tie into the episodes. A few fun facts. It was filmed in Barnesville, Georgia, And quite a few locations in California, Los Angeles, Redwood Valley, Mendocino. Just hot places. Yes. With a lot of bugs. (laughs) And that was a big thing right off the bat, too, because before we even totally know what's going on with Camille, we see that she's in a very warm location. Everyone else is dressed in summer attire. They are sweating visibly through their clothes, and yet she has on a long sleeve shirt, pants. She's completely covered. Detective Richard Willis and Chief Bill Vickery are the ones that sweat the most. (laughs) Yeah, they always had pit stains, right? Apparently it got a little bit passionate, if you want to call it that, behind the scenes. Showrunner Noxon described the alleged toe-to-toe screaming matches she and other producers would get into with director Valet over his refusal to adhere closely to the series scripts. Noxon has described Valet as much more interested in imagery and telling stories through pictures and he's brilliant at that. But I love language. I studied theater at Wesleyan before I became a writer, and the beauty of language, particularly in the Southern Gothic tradition, is so important to me. Wesleyan University? Yeah. 
right by my home I grew up in. Yeah. So a little difference of approach there, maybe causing some tension. I think it was a good mixture of both. But maybe so much emphasis on visuals is what made it feel slow sometimes. Yeah, I think you needed, you needed both of that. Also, if you're not going to give away the entire secret, but you still want to plant hints. There's symbols, there's thematic things coming up over and over again. There's imagery that later on it's not going to feel cheap that they didn't sow those seeds. You also do have to have a lot of imagery. Uh, Knox in together with Gillian Flynn, Jessica Rhodes, and Amy Adams, as well as another male producer, would reportedly have to pressure valet frequently to include the dialogue of the script in his scenes to his displeasure. Oh, wow. He didn't want to have any dialogue written down in there. Just <laughs> go with it. But I've also heard him talk in some podcasts and some interviews, and he does just sound like a genius, very brilliant at his craft. Speaking of the artsiness, the music also played a huge factor from the opening sequence to the playlist, if you want to call it that, the songs that Camille listens to while she's in her car, the music that Alan listens to as his defense mechanisms to tune out. Each episode featured a title sequence with a different interpretation of the same song, Dance and Angela by Franz Waxman from the score of the 1951 film A Place in the Sun. So... I couldn't figure that out. I thought they were going back and forth between a couple of different songs. They were trying to play with different styles, but it was actually all that same song. You had an electronic version for episode two by Jeffrey Brodsky. You had some, like you said, that sounded more old-timey. And as far as the songs Camille listens to, we don't have a list of all of them. I know noteworthy, though, there was a Led Zeppelin song, which is a rarity. Zeppelin almost never allows their catalog to be played, and it's the most expensive to get the rights to use. And no surprise, we've kind of been mentioning, but Gillian Flynn took a large part in collaboration on this. She was an executive producer. She was there a lot to offer guidance. And she was excited, as this was her debut novel, it's taken 12 years to reach the screen after the other two we mentioned. So a long time coming. I think the most intellectually and visually satisfying for me of all three. Especially with the ending. I mean, the, if the ending wasn't that good, I wouldn't have been so happy about this series itself. I think they could have done it in six episodes. I think you're right, but I also think I might have felt frustrated at that as a book reader. I was coming to see not just the same story, you know, taken from paper to TV, but something more added to it. Give me a fuller picture so I can visualize what's going on here. So episodes like the one on Calhoun Day, yeah, that was a brief little clip in the book. They stretched that out to a whole episode on the show. I like that episode, actually. And I enjoyed like getting that moment to breathe. There's so much heavy stuff going on. Just looking a little deeper into the character psyche, mm. the interactions between Adora and the chief, the stuff that's going on with Amma. I definitely hear you. I, I think I still would have stuck with eight episodes. I know that people had vastly differing opinions on the way it ends, and we will get there. Some people loved it. They thought it was perfect. Others felt it was really, really rushed to show you the final conclusion and that they had way too many open questions left at the end. Personally, I don't mind and I appreciate the open questions. If they had tried to extend it out even further and answer everything, I don't yep. know that that would have felt satisfying for me. Because we do have a narrower focus on Camille and what's going on with her, they wrapped up her storyline. 
you know, and some of that stuff's left up to your own imagination later. And I think that's okay. I agree with you, but there are some storylines or some characters where I felt I didn't get enough wrap up with or enough understanding. I felt like there was something deeper about Detective Willis. Also, Chief Bill, we were starting to get more of a view of what his deal was. There was something more going on with him and Adora, but you know what? Yeah, but that kind of goes back to the story is focused on these primary three female characters, right? And so the male characters, while expanded a little bit, are still supporting. Mm. The story isn't really about them. So I think in Flynn's novel, she wasn't as concerned with knowing all the answers to what happens to them, you know? So that probably also goes for Alan. Correct. Because I want to know what the hell's up with that dude. Why did he allow his wife to do this? Why wasn't he arrested along with Adora, you know? He was just as much responsible for that. I think he remains the prime point of frustration and question for most people. And I, I agree with all of that. We actually got even less wrap up on Alan from the books. But don't worry, we will talk about him. We'll talk about all the open questions. Let's start out just discussing who our main characters are. They are so important to everything we're going to talk about. I think the first main character, which isn't listed here, is the house. I think the house was probably one of the most important things that they had to figure out when they were coming up with this movie. The location, the size of the house, the way it looks. As a character itself, it has so much going on from the stairs, how unique those stairs are. With the wraparound railings to Adora's bedroom, which was lined on the ground with... The ivory floor. Yeah, tiled ivory. Amazing. Compounded with the fact that so much had to do with Emma's dollhouse, which is that house. If this house was wrong, I think this whole series would have been wrong. Yeah, the dollhouse was a central figure of symbolism, and we will have a few, but that's going to be the big one thematically as well as narratively to the plot by the very end you find out. So Valet had to go to that a lot, right? We had to see Emma interacting with it. Visually, we had to see what was going on in it. They did a lot of great jump cuts where you would see the dollhouse and then things would actually be moving or lights would come on. Yeah, that was messed up. And it would reflect what was happening in the house. Did that give too much away for you? Did you catch on at any point that that was going to be so critical to the storyline? No, not at all. That's great. Because I didn't either in reading the book, even though they talked about it an awful lot. I also want to say that as much as the house, the town itself of Wingap is a true character, right? Because the town itself is sick. It definitely is. There is a sickness and illness that runs rampant through their negative patterns, their secrets, their stereotypes, their complicity, this old style of thinking, which A while it does allow females to a certain position of power, also kind of dismisses them. Women aren't going to commit these crimes, right? Hmm. And that immediately takes them off the table where we should have suspected someone like Adora a while ago. When a crime does happen, it's not going to be someone from Wingap either, right? (laughs) It has to be an outsider. There there are so many things that we're going to go over, and um, it, it takes shape as a real accomplice to the crimes that are committed, right? I feel like everybody in that town is a little weird, a little too extremely weird. Mm -hmm. I would not want to have a conversation with most of them. It's definitely true. So let's talk about them. Starting with our main character, Camille Preaker, our troubled reporter who works for the St. Louis Chronicle that returns to her small town of Wingap, Missouri, 
to investigate a series of unsolved murders. She has a volatile relationship with her mother and is intrigued by her half-sister. Okay, her character, very interesting. I think Amy Adams acted the shit out of that character. Holy shit. I mean, I knew she was a good actress, but this is so far above and beyond. The only thing that bothered me, and maybe after this podcast when we talk it out, it won't bother me as much, but I felt like the whole series was about her and her illness and about her cutting that it made me at times think maybe it was Camille. Mm. Then I was thinking maybe she doesn't even have a job as a writer and Frank is her therapist and this is like an, a therapeutic exercise, Yes, which is great. That was part of it, right? That was the point. But the last episode when we start to find out what's really going on or the last episode and a half, that all goes out the window. She almost seems normal, like she's the only one with the head on her shoulders and it's no longer about her cutting. It's no longer about her illness. I, I hear you. And it's a, it's a fair point to bring up. The first part of that I definitely think was intentional. I spent a good part of the book wondering if she is the unreliable narrator who is so traumatized that she has done things and blacked them out and repressed them. The crimes seem to appear everywhere she is. And what really had me for a while was including the suicide of her roommate, at the psychiatric facility, yeah. just another person that died around her where none of the other characters were present, only her. So while I knew that she had a lot of issues and she was very troubled, I did follow that red herring of suspecting her for a while. And I think that's good. There's so many things that can be very obvious in hindsight. We needed some stuff to take us off the scent. But I want to disagree with you about the mental illness and the struggles she goes through. Because we have to wrap up the story at the end, we do kind of shift the focus a little bit to explaining to you what happened. We have to, or it's not going to be satisfying, right? But I think they lay enough tracks to show that this is not done and gone. She has finally done the big work to get past the repressed issues and the trauma that Curry has been pushing her towards. Mm -hmm. Going home and facing these things is what started to make it worse because we're pulling up all the triggers, all the hot buttons that are flooding her with flashbacks, memories, emotions. It's actually making it worse for a while while she reconnects with that. But she's facing it for the first time. Instead of shoving it down, using the alcoholism, using the cutting to try to manage it, she's dealing with it head on. And as she does so and gets down deeper and deeper to the big issues and confronts them, that's a step towards her own healing. Mm. She also is able to start to take normal steps towards healing by the end of the story to try to move on with her life. So I think it shows you why she's moving on and becoming a little bit better, but that she still struggles with the sickness that's there. Am I going to wind up like my mother? Are those things with me and it's unavoidable? I'm going to have to deal with that forever. Well, speaking of sick, our second character, Adora Crellin, played by the Patricia Clarkson, Camille's overbearing socialite mother who prefers to dote on her other daughter, Emma. The entire series, I felt like I really hated her. She, well, she was weird, first of all, but also so negative to Camille. Everything that happened was Camille's fault. Now that I know the whole story, it makes so much sense because Adora has a sickness, Munchausen's by proxy, and she wasn't able to use Camille to feed that sickness. Mm -hmm. Camille wouldn't allow her. So that created resentment, that created anger, and all those emotions were taken out on her. So true. That's also not an easy part to play. Patricia Clarkson acted the crap out of that. But in a way, she did make her sick. Oh, sure. Just, Just not, not the, the way, way she wanted. wanted. <laughs> because with that disease, 
the thing they're seeking, and again, we'll talk about that in detail later on, but is the attention, the sympathy from other people. Um, Look at me, I'm the hero mother caring for my sick child. And from Camille, she was getting the exact opposite. This is the rebellious child who doesn't listen, who's moved out of town, who's investigating these really unsavory crimes, and it's bringing the total wrong kind of attention on her. And so she can't stand for that. She was the wealthiest in this town. And second to that, or close to there, was her friend Jackie, which we'll go over in a second. Was it her first husband's farm, or was this all Adora? I can't remember if they ever specified in the books, but I believe it was her family that the first husband had nothing to do with it. Because similarly in the books, we never do find out who that was, who Camille's father was. I'm glad you bring that up because we had whoever her first husband was, Camille was the product of that relationship. Then we have her getting together with Alan Krellen, and they have first Marion, who died, obviously, and then Emma, making these Camille's half-sisters. Now, this hog farm that they own is the primary business and source of industry in the town. Everybody either works there or is connected to it somehow, which means not only is she very wealthy, but has a great deal of power and influence, and nobody wants to step to her. They're going to find themselves out of a job, out of luck. That alone should give her enough attention, but I guess it's the need. But they do need her. The town needs her. Yeah, not in a way that feeds this illness. It's so complex. I can't wait to kind of talk about that more. Before we move on, because I think this is important to Adora, let's talk about her mom. Briefly, can you remind me that story that Adora said about her mother? Yeah, and I can't think of her name. Hopefully we'll get to that later. Joy, something like that. Alan tells a story first that we're not sure if it's true or not. Who knows? All of this could be a lie, but I don't think so. I, I think Adora is revealing the genuine issues where they stemmed from for her. Alan says that Adora told him how she would wake her up in the middle of the night by pinching her. She would just go into her room and like violently pinch her legs. And she would almost smile, and then she would turn to her and say she was just checking to make sure she was still alive, that she hadn't died in her sleep. And then one day she drives her out to the middle of nowhere, parks on the side of the road, walks her deep into the woods, In the books, she had no shoes and socks on. It was cold out. And she left her there and drove away for seemingly no reason. And Adora had to find her way back, walk all the way back to the house. And she walks in and the mom's just like, oh, you made it. Very militant mother. Um, I don't know so much militant as just crazy would do things that made absolutely no sense. Was definitely overbearing and harsh and mean. She never got the love, the attention she was craving from her. She needed the mom, but the mom did not need her. And now she thus needs her kids to need her even more. She needs to be, that's the only way she can get that love. And from day one with Camille, she rejects her right off the bat because Camille won't breastfeed properly. Camille is always crying. Camille won't Take that nurturing that Adora so badly wants to give to her. It's like they started off on the wrong foot in her mind. Well, then going to the other kids, we first have Marion Krellen, played by Lulu Wilson. We only see her as younger, of course. This is Camille's half-sister who died when they were children. And then we have Emma, Camille's half-sister, Adora and Alan's second child, who is popular at school and the center of attention at home. She is used to getting what she wants. 
played by Eliza Scanlon. I think she deserves an award. I think Patricia and I think Amy Adams. Yeah. They all deserve some kind of award. Can we give a three-way <laughs> tie award? Yeah. What would you say? Who is the main character? Camille. Camille. Yeah. So supporting, they'd be going against each other, Adora and Emma. Yeah. That sucks when that happens. Yep. Emma, I mean, first of all, psychologically acting this role must have messed with her a little bit. I don't know how old she is in real life. I think much older than she appears to be or that she's supposed to be on screen, but definitely still on the younger side. I also heard her talk briefly on an interview, though, and she sounds very smart, very intellectual, maybe, you know, very mature. Yeah. But it's incredibly complex because as a character, she is also very smart, very precocious, knows how to manipulate people to read them, to get what she wants out of them. Very much. But she will vacillate into this regressed state that the mom wants her to be in at times where she's very Weak childlike. And needy, yeah. But is a form of manipulation as well because she knows she'll get, she'll give what her mom needs and potentially get what she wants or be out of the hot seat for a little bit. Yeah, but I don't think it's all conscious and intentional. Okay. I, I think she has in certain ways kept her developmentally stuck Yes. At, at such a stage, this rollerblading around and playing with the dollhouse and... Roller skating. Sorry. They weren't blading. Roller skating. There are certain ways in which she can't really move on mm. because of this sick relationship that they have together. It's a life built on abuse and therefore Emma abuses her friends in different ways, abuses her sister, abuses her mother psychologically as well, and abuses herself. And Camille, from the very first interaction they have together. Now, the nature of their relationship, though, is perhaps the only one different for Emma in her life. And I think it's something I wish we had a lot more time to talk about. She plays around with the idea of rejecting her when Camille first comes. And I don't know if that's because she thinks the center of attention is going to shift from the mom towards her. And once she sees that it's not, she's sort of okay with that. But she also on some level, I think, wants to have a normal relationship with her. Thinks maybe Camille is the only one that can do that for her, where she can get love and affection from her. They can Mm -hmm. be like sisters. And in her own way, I do think she tries (laughs) to build that as the series goes on. The mixture of the way Eliza acts this role and the way it was written, I think was played so well because maybe episode two or three, I was thinking Emma did this. And then I totally stopped thinking that up until the last second of the season. Now, is that because you felt bad for her at some point? I think, yeah. I almost forgot. To be honest with you, when we fell right into the Adora making her sick, and it was all about that, and then making Camille sick, I forgot about the murders. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that's not what we were trying to figure out this whole time. But it was. But it was, exactly. Yeah. Plus, they tossed you a lot of other red herrings along the way. Many, many. Don't tell mom. Oh, my God. That was She's insane. She's scary. <laughs> <laughs> Do you... Oh, I'll, I'll save that till later. <laughs> well, next up, we have Alan Crellin, played by Henry Zerny, Camille's stepfather who dedicates his life to keeping his wife, Adora, comfortable and keeping his mouth shut. This guy, man. <laughs> I have so much to say about him. First of all, what a loser. <laughs> all he does is sit there with his records and reads and listens loudly obnoxiously loud there's other people in this house dude you gotta chill with that music 
doesn't pay attention, has half-hearted conversations with Adora, which I think is just years of Adora beating it, beating him down. Mm-hmm. I mean, she could Adora could get love from Alan potentially, but that's not the kind of love she wants. Yeah. To his cavalierness of, you know, there was a second there where I thought he was going to finally step up, and you know, when he was saying, "Take it easy with that. Don't go too hard tonight." I think. If we just let the body fight this on its own, you'll be surprised how resilient the body is. And then she says something and he goes, well, this is your... Your area. Your area. It's like yeah, showing complacent prick. Showing, the TV show definitely indicates without a question that he knows on some level what she's doing. Uh, he takes an active role in, in not just being complicit, but covering up when the detective comes to the house and Alan yeah. turns him away, stopping Emma from leaving the house. So the book makes you wonder, is he so deep in denial that he really just can't allow himself to know it? On a conscious level, it hasn't even entered his brain. He can't think that about her. I don't think we can take that route with the TV show. So all I can say is that, A, he has suffered multiple abuses also throughout the years from Adora. She has manipulated him just as much, if not more, than anyone else into constantly hungering and striving for this attention from her just a scrap just a little piece of something you know he has to sleep on the couch he's not even allowed in the same room the only thing he can do is every once in a while when she needs something be there to fulfill that for her and maybe he'll get a tiny bit of kindness and affection in return but only if he plays by the rules and he has an inkling that there's other things going on, but he has to retreat into his defense mechanisms and shut it out, or he's going to be out on his own too. I'm not saying it's okay by any means. Alan is also a very horrible character for what he's done, mm. but it's not a simple answer for him either. There are no simple answers for these relationships and the abuse that all of these people are going through. Seeing all the things she's putting in this concoction, I would have been, if I saw you doing it, and I trust you. I would have been like, what is that? Let me see those pills. Why are you crushing it and putting it? What does this pill do? Why are you doing this to our kid? Listen, Tylenol, just give her that. But also we go back to this like old school Southern True. way of doing things. There's things that are a woman's area, right? To take care of the children. So very early on, Adora tells him, our, our children are sick, right? They have this sickness. Marion's a very sick child. This is so unfortunate. I have these remedies for how I help her. I make these yeah. tonics. I make these natural home remedies that are the only thing that helps them. Let me care for my children. And he okay. does. And now we set a pattern for the way things go moving forward. And he doesn't have a real job. He doesn't need to. No. Because they're so wealthy. So I guess he, she has that power over him as well. Mm-hmm. She runs his life. He's like a lapdog. Midway through the season, I started to think it was may have been him mm. because of this quiet demeanor. Seems useless to the point of harmless. And I'm like, hmm. Even at some points, um, icky. Yes. He does things that are like, oh, what's icky. going on with this guy? Don't love it. So I was thinking in my head, I thought, well, maybe because he's not getting any kind of love from his, his child, maybe he seeked it out with these two young women and mm. maybe he uh, went too far once with oh, them wow. physically and then killed them out of panic. Yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah. I don't think I went there. I could see that though. I think I wondered if he had found out what she was doing and helped to cover it up so she wouldn't get caught. Okay. 
Um, they indicated there might be male strength needed. So did she have an accomplice to help pull teeth or do something? Not that Alan seems like a man of such great strength, but yeah, I wondered if he was kind of the partner that was bullied into participating. But I think I dismissed that pretty quickly. He's just a loser. Yeah. We have a couple other big male characters. Next up is Detective Richard Willis, played by Chris Messina, the Kansas City detective who was stationed in Wind Gap to aid with the investigation. World's worst detective? I'm going to try to not talk a blue streak about how much I hate Kansas City in this show and the book. Not only does he prove himself a bad detective multiple times, and I know he does eventually kind of get to the bottom of what's going on with Adora, but even that he does not handle well. He doesn't do what he should with the facts to help the situation. But the whole relationship with Camille is just so wrong from moment one. Mm. Now, for a while in the books, it's a mutually usury type of relationship. They both know that they're meeting up because they want information from each other. He's trying to get the inside scoop on what she's, she's learning, learning through yep. her interviews. And she's trying to figure out what they're onto with the case, who their main leads are to help with her reporting. They also at some point establish, well, this could be usury in a sexual capacity on both ends of things. And without seeming crude, are just kind of getting each other off without anything a heck of a lot deeper to that. But there is a point where they start to develop kind of a friendship start to trust each other and lean on each other a little bit. And it's very obvious that there's so much more going on with Camille. Mm -hmm. And yet it doesn't seem he is genuinely interested in trying to figure that out and trying to help her in any way. It's like it's too much. It scares the shit out of him. She's too broken and he doesn't even want to know. And I think, A, that indicates he doesn't really care about her on a deeper level, but B, blinds him to some facts he probably should be on to in order to figure out what's happening with this family. I think he was blinded to a lot of things. I know it was a battle for him because Chief Bill wasn't giving him much. The whole town wasn't giving him much. It's some outsider, who the hell are you, to tell us that we are the bad guys or someone in our family, meaning Wind Gap family. Um, but the simple things, even at the end with him knocking on the door and just being like, oh, they're being weird and driving away. <laughs> it's like, dude... You know this town is messed up. You know something's going on. Some some intuition brought you there. You have to push a little bit. Yeah, and I, I think he does. It's not that he thinks everything's fine. He's no, he knows something's not right. But like you said, he never takes it that next step. He lets Chief Vickery strong arm him throughout the investigation. He doesn't push it when he knows there's issues. Like we see multiple times that he knows it's not John Keene that did this. Yeah. I think he lets it go on to the point that bad things could have happened and he could have been partially to blame for sure for not doing more. From the moment he goes to that clinic and he speaks to the woman who used to work at the hospital that knows all about Marion, he should have blown that shit wide open. Yeah, especially the way Bill uh, answered him. That was the typical hiding something answer. The look he gave when he finally saw Camille naked and can see her skin... This is the last episode. Mm -hmm. And the look he gave, like, surprise. It's like, yeah, asshole, you've had sex with her many times. You don't even know. And I understand in the beginning, it's like she tries to navigate that by mm -hmm. being the one in control. We're going to do this my way. And, 
maybe you go with that for a time or two, but at some point when you're with somebody and you literally haven't seen or touched one inch of bare skin, that's mm-hmm. going to be okay with you. And if that's okay with you, I don't really like the kind of person you are. Yeah. You're not emotionally caring about this. And even if he had an inkling at some point that that is what she's doing, because when he went and talked to the people at the psychiatric place she was at, I think he caught on to that she does self-harm. But the level of it, the the Mm -hmm. fact that he can say what he says to her when he finds her with John Keane, I mean, I can't forgive the words that came out of his mouth is the big thing, even though she did (laughs) sleep with this kid and that's not okay. He acted like an immature, wounded child who had just no awareness of the bigger picture. And um, I don't love him. I'm sorry. (laughs) I mean, I love Chris Messina and he does a good job with this role. Well, next up is Chief Bill Vickery, played by Matt Craven the police chief of Wingap, and a man fiercely protective of his town. Um, you know, he's not easy either. <laughs> you, you definitely want to hate him. He clearly has known more than he lets on about this town and its secrets for a very long time. You never quite find out the extent of that. I personally get the feeling that he did not know Adora had killed Marion. He was catching on to something being weird with those kids being sick so much, but I don't think he knew how far that went. If he did, I also really don't like him, but I would like to say he was also a little blinded and manipulated by Adora. He's another suspect I had, Mm. but only for one episode. Towards the end of the season, there was these moments where he would look at the young girls, specifically Emma's friends, and he would stare them down. There's a few scenes, but one that comes to mind is when Emma's sick, so it's her other two friends are roller skating down the street. He stares at them as they go by, almost dreamfully and creepily. Yeah. Then creeps up on them, rolls the window down. What are you girls doing out here? I was like, oh man, okay. So maybe he has an affinity for young children. And again, Natalie and Anne went too far with them, ended up killing them. And that's why he was so upset when Detective Richard Willis came, because he's hiding something. And that's why the relationship with Adora, that's not quite sexual and having an affair, but there's definitely more to it, because maybe they're partners in crime. Right, exactly. And when she says to him, I could out you as police chief, it's like, listen, we're in on this together, and don't you forget it. So this is good writing, because you're supposed to, every episode almost, be like, no, it was her. No, it was him. Nope, had to be him. And we still don't really know, other than the fact that he's stuck in this old school, old town mentality of the way he thinks, the way he runs it as police chief, the things he's willing to close his eyes to, not one of our own. And he doesn't love his wife, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. He's a miserable man. He fantasizes about Adora, at the very least. And Alan knows about it. (laughs) Boy, does he. He's not stupid. He's just dumb. (laughs) (laughs) He's just a doormat. Well, then we have the two murder victims and their family. The first victim, Anne Nash, played by Keegan Barron, was murdered by a creek in the woods last summer, but placed in an alleyway fairly recently. We see her father, Bob Nash, who becomes paranoid over who is responsible for her death. Uh, Another red herring that's thrown up for us because he comes across as very strange in his interactions. I think Will Chase played this wounded role very well. It was an intriguing character, but I never once felt like it was him. Mm -hmm. 
I thought it would be too obvious if it was. Yeah, I wondered maybe he's not the best dad. Maybe he's even abused some of these children at some point, but I know he's not the murderer. Then our second victim, Natalie Keene, played by Jessica Tresca, who was found in the woods. And that becomes a big storyline because of her older brother, John Keene, played by Taylor John Smith, who was ridiculed in town for his grief and sensitivity and also looked at as a bit of an outsider as the family came there in the near distant past. Yeah. They're not from Wingap. Now, John, again, another character I never once felt it was him. I knew he was hurting. I knew he was not happy there. I knew his girlfriend was cray-cray, but never suspected him as a killer. Agreed. 1,000%. Even at times where they clearly wanted to pull you onto that trail, like the blood under the bed. No. I didn't feel it. And I think that's a big part of how Taylor John Smith played it. You could feel the genuineness, the sensitivity coming across from him. Mm -hmm. I never even thought that the blood had anything to do with the murder. That ending episode, when they tell him about it, he freaks out and is like, so it started there? So maybe it was the blood from her? I thought more specifically it was because his sister was a biter and it was blood left over from her biting somebody or someone biting her. I think they wound up identifying it as her blood. Right. But yeah, I agree with you that that's absolutely what I thought too. I wondered if the girlfriend, Ashley Wheeler, played by Madison Davenport, could be somehow in on this in the sense that she knew more than what she was saying. Same here. And still not with him being the murderer, but she did seem to know the girls fairly well. She was bitten. Another Wingapian who was just fucking crazy. Well, and these two girls aren't totally normal either because we find out Natalie had this history where she stabbed another little girl in the eye once. That's right, yeah. Her and Anne are going around biting people for what reason we have no idea, but we know that one of them bit Adora, I forget which one, at some point that she needed stitches. And clearly Adora saw something of Camille in these girls. They were tomboys, they were rebels, they were very smart, but they weren't going to fit into that Emma picture of the roller girls in town. They needed to be fixed, and she thought maybe she could fix them in a way she never could with Camille. But I, I think there was definitely something troubled about them too. Yeah. And that's just not a part of the story we get. Uh, but I think what makes you a little suspect of John is that he doesn't put emphasis on that and keeps talking about what a great kid his sister was, all of well, these things. When someone in your family dies, especially initially, you're not thinking about the little things that were troubled with them. You know, the little things like how they stab somebody. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. Did you find it believable that Camille would sleep with John? Yes. You did? Yes. Okay. I know a lot of people struggled with that. I didn't even find it that wrong, and maybe there's something wrong with me. I mean, first of all, he's 18. He is an adult. Uh, second of all, he's clearly mature and intelligent and able to, even drunk, have his wits about him. He's going into this knowingly. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's not being manipulated uh, emotionally. He's not being taken advantage of. He sees something in Camille because he's looking and because he cares mm -hmm. in a way that other people, namely Kansas City, does not. He wants to know what's going on with her. He feels this pain and senses a likeness in her and says, I, I want to see, I want to understand you. And that's big for Camille. I mean, Camille's probably waited her whole life for somebody to say that. And then upon seeing her, the instinct is not shock, revulsion, 
desire to run the other way. It's what's happened to you? What, what's gone on? Like, I want to know your story because I feel that pain too and I get it. And mm. they're able to kind of connect and emotionally heal each other in a way. I think the fact that they have sex is almost secondary to that. Yeah. And that's something that the detective just can't understand. All he sees is you slept with an 18-year-old boy. <laughs> what's the matter with you? And how do you even explain that to somebody? How old are you, son? That was a real moment. That was intense. How did they find them? I, I actually like the way the chief handled that. Yeah. It's one time where I was like, okay, that's the right thing to do. I think that somebody saw them leave that little bar they were at together. Okay. And they followed his truck. All right. We have just a few more people to talk about. One is Frank Curry, played by Miguel Sandoval, the no-nonsense editor of the St. Louis Chronicle, Camille's editor, boss, and friend. He's married to Eileen. Love him. Yeah, me too. One of my favorite, if not my favorite, characters of the show. The only character who wasn't weird or crazy in this show. And one of the only ones who truly did care about Camille. For sure. I mean, really got kind of everything she was going through. I know some people criticized him for pushing her so hard, sending her there in the first place. He knew Camille later in life, and he did know that she was cutting, that she went to this facility. I think he might have even encouraged her to go there. Let's not forget, once she left there, she was not actively self-harming anymore. She wasn't cutting. She had made some kind of uh, progress in her recovery. And I think he thought she needed the next step of facing those issues and really dealing with it uh, emotionally, psychologically for herself to continue to recover, but also because it was blocking her writing to not do that. And I think he had no idea yeah. of how, how bad. Yeah. And when he started to cotton on to that, he really was like checking in with her, telling her to come back and eventually goes there to find out. He saves her life. He saves her life. So I don't know how he could have done better, really. <laughs> Me neither. He, he was confusing in the beginning and not in a bad way. I was trying to figure out like we had said, maybe he isn't really her boss, or maybe he used to be and she was fired because something happened and he's trying to help her, or maybe he's her therapist. And who is this nurse or wife mm. always with him? And is he sick? He's what is he sick from? sick with yeah. something, yeah. So there was a lot going on there, but in the end, it didn't matter. The final scene with him and Camille, I thought, talked volumes of their relationship mm -hmm. and really made me understand where he was coming from and what he was trying to do. He was trying to pull the best out of her as a writer, but also as a person and heal her in a way. That final dinner, actually. Um, oh, my God. Talk about tension and another uncomfortable moment. I felt uncomfortable. You would always say, all right, let's watch uh, another episode of Sharp Objects. And I'd be like, all right, <laughs> I'd rather watch a comedy, but I guess I'm going to feel uncomfortable for a little bit. But it was amazing nonetheless, right? It was. It was worth right? it, yes. I mean, you have that feeling, but then the episode ends and you're like, wow, mm -hmm. wow. And the things do end a little bit differently with Curry. We'll talk about that later. But I agree. I think it was confusing because he did love her. And mm -hmm. we're not thinking that that's like a typical thing. He's her boss, but he also loves her. He cares about her. He is her family, her only real family in the end. And I just thought the portrayal by Miguel Sandoval was right on point. And our last big character is Jackie O'Neill, played by Elizabeth Perkins, an acquaintance of Camille's family and the town gossip. Throughout the book and in the TV show, I really thought she was a relative for a long time. I thought she I was thought an so aunt, too. Yeah. a cousin. Uh, wounds up that she's just a very close friend, but I think has acted sort of as an aunt to Camille her whole life um, because she does 
care about her on some level as well. This is tricky. Obviously, she's complicit too, very much so. In fact, she's one of the few people that maybe knew the whole truth early on. Yeah, but I think at this point she was complicit out of survival because she did get too close, I think, at one time. And now she's trying to bury it with with pills and alcohol. But why do we not excuse that for Alan and we do excuse it for Jackie? Because Jackie is just a friend that was trying to help. There's only so much she can do. She knew the truth the same way we think Alan did. In fact, she knew it enough that she asked for medical records. Yeah, but she realized the town. She has control of the town. She has control of everything around her. Yeah, but I don't think that's an excuse that you just say, ah, too difficult, this nut's not cracking, I give up, I'm going to let this woman keep killing her children? Uh, Come on. What? Did she know that much? And she didn't even sit down with Camille. She's always like with these coded hints and clues, Mm -hmm. and she doesn't even tell her. She could have told uh, Kansas City. I'm sorry, I keep calling him, that's like my nickname for him. Detective Willis, early on. Yeah the whole truth. I mean, really, in hindsight, it is inexcusable what she did, and that's why Camille gets so angry with her in the end. It's the same as any other character. We can understand, psychologically, she has been manipulated. She has been beaten down. She has her own issues that she's drowning and and swallowing with, with pills and all these other things, but not totally inept, and we see this very telling scene at the end where she's gonna be Queen bee. The new queen bee in town. So yeah. I think there is a certain degree of selfishness. For sure. And for sure self-protection that's happening with Jackie. I definitely wouldn't want her in my town because she seems like the one that will smile and be nice to you and your, to your face. But then the minute you turn around, she'll be like, bitch, you know? <laughs> or tell all your secrets. Oh, absolutely tell all your secrets. <laughs> yeah. We had a couple other minor characters we're not really going to get into. I mean, there was Kirk Lacey, who is a teacher at Wingap School. Uh, we did suspect him a little. He he does wind up being important because of the trauma he contributed to with Camille Yeah. in her past. Homecoming varsity football team. He was one of the main players in that. One of the main kids that you saw in Camille's flashbacks. Who assaulted her. I mean, she doesn't view it that way, but obviously that is what happened. His remorse and guilt over it really shows the truth of that in the scene where he tries to apologize to her. I mean, another sick character. Well. This town is just... Truly, yeah. I just remember all these clips in this show. So dreary. From the school to the pig farm. Mm. Ugh. How sad did that make you feel? And I was like, I don't want to eat bacon. It was even more gross in the books, the way they described that. Yeah. And the scene with Amma going there. Petting a baby one, which was looking at Camille and smiling. I was like, this woman. That was even more graphic and disgusting in the books. Really? Yeah. Ugh. Just uncomfortable. That's all I remember. Yeah. So there's other sidebar characters, but those are all of the big ones. Let's jump into our episodes. And as we said, we're going to do a brief synopsis of each and any of our big thoughts on how those things contributed. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Shudder, the premium streaming video service from AMC Networks. Shudder is super serving fans the best selection of thrillers, suspense, and horror. Christina loves horror, and our listeners love horror. And I bully you into watching it because you just don't have a choice. This is virtually made for me. Let me tell you a little about them. They have the largest and best curated selection of dangerous entertainment, including original films, series, blockbuster hits, and new movies added weekly. 
you can stream ad-free from all your devices, iPhone, iPad, Xbox One, Apple TV. You get member-only perks such as exclusive releases and VIP screenings. And it's very easy to use. When you go on there, you'll see, for example, there's a tab that brings you to genres. You can look at collections of psychological thrillers, supernatural, creature features, exclusive and originals. Or you can just type in the name of the movie you're looking for and search from there. You can choose from one of their countless collections, such as 30 of the best horror films you won't find on Netflix. They have classics like The Exorcist, Single White Female, The Descent. They have hard-to-find movies. So I'll tell you, one of my lesser-known favorites is a movie called Dead End. My family and I stumbled upon it many years ago. It's very quirky, but I love it. And I had a real hard time ever after finding that someplace. I was so excited when I went on Shutter to find out they have it. I can't wait to tell my family next time we're looking for good new scary movies. This is going to make the selection process much easier and more fun. You guys should all check it out. Shudder believes there is safety in numbers. Don't be left alone in the dark. And this is win-win for our listeners because you can try Shudder for free. 30 days, in fact. A whole month of scaring yourself. And October's right around the corner. This is the perfect it's time perfect. to do it. Just go to Shudder.com forward slash podcast and use promo code CKC. That's Shudder. S-H-U-D-D-E-R dot com. Promo code CKC. Let them know the CKC family brought you and enjoy 30 days of scaring your pants off. Then go on to our Twitter, at CKC Podcast. Let us know what shows you're watching. Especially if you try one of their exclusive or originals, let me know. I'd be happy to give it a look. They have so many on there. So don't forget, that's shutter.com forward slash podcast and use promo code CKC. So we open up with episode one, Vanish, where Camille, we see, is struggling with her own issues, her alcoholism, her self-harm, her flashbacks to her troubled childhood. Her editor, Frank Curry, orders her to return to Wingap, where a 13-year-old girl, Anne Nash, was murdered the previous summer, and another, 14-year-old Natalie Keene, has gone missing. Camille's flashbacks intensify when she returns, and after a couple of days, she goes to live with her mother, Adora, her stepfather, Alan, and her half-sister, Emma. I think this was question number one for me. Why didn't she just stay at the motel? What prompted her to actually go back and stay there? I think it was a few things. One, with her being at the hotel, I think her drinking was compounded. She would go even deeper than she was comfortable with. Also, I felt like these flashbacks were actually breaking her down. And even though the company that she would have is the main motivator of her pain, I think she didn't want to be alone, and she felt like she needed to face it. Well, shortly after she returns home, she meets Detective Richard Willis during a search party. She then goes and talks with Bob Nash about the disappearance of his daughter. And of course, that's come back to the forefront, not just because there's a new girl who's gone missing, but her body is discovered later on in this alley. Emma and Camille talk about their middle sister, Marion, who died when Camille was younger. And Emma secretly admits to disliking her mother's treatment of her and behaves like a child to hide her rebellious side. At the end of this episode, during a bath is when it's revealed that Camille has these words all over her body. Yeah, it actually highlights her arm as it fades away to the end of the episode. So this first episode, Vanish, gives us really quick the knowledge of what's going on with Camille. The, the fact that she drinks a lot. We don't know exactly what happened to her, but we know she's struggling and, and she's off. There's something wrong with her past. At this point, and I don't remember specifically, but I don't, I don't think I suspected Adora too much of being such a witch. Um, I knew 
I could tell she's weird. And obviously, she's done some harm. Uh, I mean, she's like, I, you should have told me you were coming. The place is a mess. But I didn't know how crazy she was. Yeah, more like an overbearing socialite woman than necessarily a severely mentally ill woman at this point. I mean, that does come to the forefront in small pieces, the more interactions that she has with Camille. You definitely immediately get the weirdness that's going on with Emma. You're not quite sure what that relationship yeah, is. right away. And actually, meeting Detective Willis, at this point, I was like, this guy might be legit. He carried himself well enough. And I thought for sure he would be the one that would, in the end, figure it out. Yes, but that would not have been satisfying either. I don't think the typical out-of-town detective who comes in and just picks up on all of the secrets, uncovers it. There's also elements early on, I think primarily episodes one and two, that you wonder if there is something maybe supernatural going on. We get a lot of flashbacks to Marion as a child. You can't quite tell if there's still a presence of her within the house or trying to warn oh, yeah, Camille yeah. of something. She falls asleep and Marion's trying to wake her up. When we see the words on Camille's skin in the bathtub, then it seems like they disappear. That's right. They show words throughout the episode that come up in random places and then either disappear or change into other words. I mean, in episode one alone, you have Catfight is on a farm vehicle. When we're in Camille's office, ask is spelled out with thumbtacks on the backboard. There's both bad and drunk carved into her table. There's dirt written into the dust on the trunk of her car. Yeah. Uh, when she's driving to Wind Gap, the highway sign says last exit to change your mind. And then even weirder things, like as she's fiddling with her stereo, when she drives past the bar, the stereo reads out wrong. Yelp is scratched into the doorframe when the chief kneels down by the victim. Girl is scratched into the artwork on Emma's dollhouse that was really hard to find and ending up with vanish on her skin. And I think I wondered, are these indicators? Like, is this her dead sister trying to warn her right, about yeah. things? Does she even have words carved into her body? Or is that some kind of message that she's sending her? You just don't know what the reality of it is. And when we finally get into this woman in white stuff... <laughs> And people being in the street and then not being in the street a second later, you do suspect. I mean, not in like a weird ghost story way, but is there an influence that's going to help Camille throughout this journey? Or is it just that she's an alcoholic, she's losing pieces of time, she's flashing back and forth? You don't know where to land on that. For sure. I, I actually forgot about that feeling that way because of the ending being so impactful. I thought that her sister might be around the ghost of her sister. And the reason why Camille left was because she couldn't deal with the ghost. Yeah. And she forgot. You know, people that get sick mentally, they totally erase things in their mind. And when she gets back home, eventually she will realize, oh, that's right. My sister is here. And I've been ignoring her because it was too much to handle. Yeah. I think I started out the same way, thinking that was the case, and then shifted into, oh, she's left because she's repressing, because she did something wrong. She hurt her sister. She right. is actually... Turned into that, yeah. You know, it sort of evolved. But yeah, early on, there was a feeling of, you have no idea what's happening in this town, in this house. And that's the director doing exactly what you said at the top of this episode. Point of view. Camille is seeing this. And that's why she scratches it on herself, well, those specific words. She sees that in her mind, the narrator in her brain. Yeah, but as the viewer, we can't tell mm -hmm. what's reality, what's thought, what's ghosts, you know. So then we go on to episode two, Dirt. 
Detective Willis wonders why Anne was found in the woods on the spot where she was killed, yet Natalie was discovered posed in the middle of town, her teeth yanked out with pliers. I think it's around here, but I don't have it written down where he goes and he does the test on how difficult it would be to actually pull teeth out. He gets that pig's head and he tries it out and... They're suspect for a while that it has to be a male because of the strength that's involved in that, which I think really takes their investigation on a wrong turn. Yeah, I never bought that. A pig's teeth are a lot bigger than a human's, a lot bigger than a child. So the amount of power that you, you would need from these big molars from a pig who can chop up anything, human bodies, if they're hungry enough. I guess he was just trying to get a feel for it would still be super hard even if it was a human, and he's having difficulty picturing a woman do that. But again, we're going to that stereotype, which is going to dismiss people that should be suspects because a woman who's filled with anger and rage can possess incredible amounts of strength. It's not so out of hand to think that. But I think this also, for a while, has them wondering if there's more than one person, and maybe that is a train they should have been on. Camille also sees the detective taking soil samples from Bob Nash's tires, She knows that they're thinking he's a suspect because of that. Adora, who has kept Marion's room like a shrine, continues to belittle Camille, who she accuses of embarrassing the family with her investigation. Camille thinks Natalie's older brother, John, stands out in Wind Gap and is told by neighborhood kids that the woman in white took Natalie. So we get that scene, and it doesn't really play in until the very end with the kid, James Capisi, who the chief in the town are dismissing because his mother's a drug addict. They're very poor. You can't believe anything he says. He tells Camille vehemently that this woman in white lured the two girls into the woods. That's another element for a while. We wonder if it's kind of supernatural. (laughs) Is this a spirit? What did he really see? And Camille starts seeing the woman in white in the woods. And then for a while, we think it's Adora. It's not to the very end that we realize that that was Amma herself. Yeah, the last scene in the series is Amma standing there in front of the woods in white, mm-hmm. looking scary. Yeah. So both the chief and the detective don't believe this. They think it's a local story about the woman in white. You they- notice that the when they're wearing white is when Adora is on full tilt with her sickness, making them sicker. She's keeping them. She puts them in those white... uh, Small, innocent children she has to care for. And Adora accuses Camille of being drunk at Natalie's funeral and says Natalie reminded her of Camille when she was young. I believe that might also be the time we get the flashback to Marion's funeral. And there was a couple big tip-offs that seemed like small things. This was one of them. The fact that Marion had lipstick on and Camille as a child knew that wasn't right. And when she ran up to the coffin, she tried to wipe it off and they were looking at her like she was crazy she was freaking out she was being pulled off of marion but this was the mother staging Mm -hmm. marion you know she wanted marion like a doll the way she needed her to be there is also talk later that one of the murdered girls had her fingers painted and we don't know if that was adora or emma but really either would fit Episode 3, Fix, starts off after a party, drunk Amma crashes a golf cart into her mother's rose bushes. Camille flashes back to her recent stay in a psychiatric facility where she shared a room with a girl named Alice. They became friends listening to Alice's music, but Alice winds up committing suicide by drinking drain cleaner, and a devastated Camille slashes her own wrists. Violently. There's so many parallels, and again with the imagery, I could just go on forever with valet, but by opening the episode with... Adora being cut by those roses, right? And the cut on her hand and the red of the blood, the red of the roses. 
then ties in with the roses that Adora tries to bring to Camille when she's in this hospital and she's not allowed to because they have thorns on them to which she freaks out and runs away. And then the cutting later on with Camille, they just kind of string this sequence of events together in a way that could feel very disorienting and disjointed for you. It's a weird time frame because we know it's the near distant past. It's not that long ago that Camille was in this place. And I think we see bits of her own kind of stunted development and regression to a point in time, the way she's relating to her roommate, Alice. It's almost like she's a teenager herself when she's talking to her. And she can't help but tell her the truth, which maybe was a bad idea when the girl asks her if it ever gets any better and Camille says no. And it's very shortly after that, unfortunately, yeah. that she winds up committing suicide. And that really nearly pushes Camille off the deep end. I mean, she probably was in great danger for her own life with that episode. This was not kind of the more ordered, I hate to phrase it like that, but it's a very different process that she goes through when she's cutting the words into her skin Yes. versus the episode she has here after Alice's death. Also worth mentioning that that was much longer in the TV show. They kind of extended her stay there, I think, to show you inside of Camille's mind. Then in the present, Camille goes to interview Bob Nash, who thinks John Keane was involved. Vickery calls Adora, who arrives and rebukes Camille while comforting Bob. You learn very quickly her power and influence that everything that's going on, she finds out about. Vickery was willing to call and bring her here. And she just completely quashes an interview that she was actually getting a lot out of. Yes. That was very frustrating for me. I thought she was getting somewhere. A good journalist blends therapy with getting information. And that's exactly what she did. And it takes a while to get to that point with someone that you're interviewing, especially someone like Bob Nash who is very volatile at this point. You can see he's horrible to his children that remain there. He's borderline abusive. He's aggressive. He's angry. Camille was opening him up. It took many times of her visiting him to get to this point. As soon as Adora comes in and blocks that off, Camille never, ever gets to that point again with Bob. Yeah, she can't reestablish the trust. But she is still learning things, you know, throughout all these sequence of events about the girls, what they were like. You're also learning more about the relationship between her and Adora. I mean, down to the fact that Adora is blaming her for the rose bushes cutting her. Uh, yeah, this is your fault. <laughs> and completely denying anything about Emma that doesn't fit the picture she needs her to be in. Emma crashing the golf cart into the roses is yeah. inconsequential. Look what you've done. I was like, what? Look what she's done? Yeah, so you're picking up a little bit now of the sickness going on. We also see John's girlfriend, Ashley Wheeler, as one of the few people who is friendly to Camille. We will learn very quickly on why that is. She is an odd duck herself, Ashley, desperate for attention. Yeah. After a conversation between Adora and Vickery, Adora warns Emma about Camille and that she's dangerous. That threw us for a loop. I kept thinking about that. Why is she dangerous? Why are they saying it that way? What does that mean? But... Towards the end of the season, I started to realize, no, it wasn't about Camille being a dangerous person for Emma. It was that she's dangerous to Adora because if anyone's going to be able to get Emma to realize what's going on and to get the power to stop Adora's sickness, it would be Camille. It kept you confused, though, because it wasn't just her who said it. There was a few comments. I think it was the chief who said one of them's in danger and the other one is a danger. So you're hearing it from multiple sources and really starting to question Camille. 
Yeah, and we're losing trust for Camille because she can't trust her own self. She doesn't know what happened the night before. She wakes up on the side of the road, sleeping on the ground. You also get these bizarre flashbacks in very small pieces initially to what happened with her that day in high school in the woods at the cabin. But you don't know early on that really she was assaulted. They make Mm -hmm. it seem like she has a weird connection to sexuality, that her first real sexual awakening happened at this place that's very dark and disgusting and has these horrible pornographic images inside of there. Yet that's the first time we think that Camille was sexually aroused and went back and masturbated after that experience. And she also takes Detective Willis back to that same spot where they engage in a sexual act later. So you're just kind of struggling, like, what is happening here? What is this? And it's not until later that we start to realize that's actually another compounded trauma that Camille has. Also, Detective Willis is frustrated by the lack of cooperation from the police in Wingap and by Vickery, belittling his beliefs that the murderer is from within the town. He tells Camille to stay out of his way, and it's revealed Adora also knew Anne and tutored her. So we slowly get these pieces as well that Adora was actually close to these two little girls. This is not lip service that she's paying to Camille to get her to back off. And this all makes sense in the end because Adora was now giving a lot of attention to these girls. Mm-hmm. And Emma did not like that attention being taken away from her. Absolutely. Munchausen syndrome. Adora's sickness of needing attention and giving so much to Emma to receive it back created a sickness with Emma where when she's no longer receiving that attention, even if it's not healthy, she lashes out to get it back. Yeah, it's this multi-generational transmission, and so you don't wind up with the same sickness in response to the illness and the particular crazy things that are happening. You have a whole other illness present itself, but there is a high prevalence wherever there's any kind of abuse with that victim now becoming an abuser in some way moving forward. So now we have episode four, Ripe. Camille arrives at a luncheon with Jackie and her other friends where they discuss what's happening in the town and who they think did it. Soon after, she shows Richard around numerous crime scenes within Wingap before taking him to the hunting shed in the woods. This is where we get the sexual scene between the two of them. We also see Emma is revealed to have created nasty posters of John Keane, who is soon fired from his job at Adora's hog factory because of his reputation. So yet again, Adora flexing her power. She doesn't want to be associated with this person who is being set up to be the killer. And we really don't realize until later that Adora played a large role in that, perpetuating the story that it was John Keane. This whole scene with uh, Detective Willis and Camille, her showing him around and her breaking down, seeing all these flashbacks and him not noticing her. As a detective, you should be aware of what's going on. If someone is showing you spots that are potential places and you're not only reading the rooms that you're being showed, You should be reading the person showing you that. That speaks more volume to what's going on. I think maybe the only reason why he didn't is twofold. One, because the emotional things that's going on with them, which makes you blind. And also, two, knowing that Camille hasn't been around. She might not know. She's not a suspect suspect, you know what I mean? In his mind. (laughs) Well, in a detective's mind, though, everybody is a suspect at this point, and... Even being emotionally invested, then you would think he would be interested to know her past on a personal level and what's happened to her. He does find it weird the way she basically asks him to get her off 
and won't touch him, won't kiss him. They don't kiss until later. I think he puts it down as kinky, quirky at first. He's just controlling. She was losing control of her mind with this, with all these flashbacks. And her way of regaining that control was to completely control that situation. And having him just like a first-time middle school kids messing around, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was so creepy. And, but then it happens again later when they have sex and mm-hmm. he literally doesn't get to touch any part of her. And I just can't imagine not even questioning that, not even kind of digging to there is obviously a psychological reason why that's happening unless he doesn't care. It's so hard to pinpoint in a way that just doesn't make him look like an ass, no matter mm-hmm. how you look at it. I also think around here somewhere, I can't remember exactly, is when Emma goes to the hog farm. And like we said, we're not going to know until much later on, but it seems like she brought the bike there and the worker that she was talking to where we didn't understand why she met with him later. Mm-hmm. Camille followed and saw that happen was to have him dispose of the bike. As Calhoun Day approaches, Emma practices for a play and flirts with her teacher privately. So creepy. And yes. this guy is just, I mean, we do find out later he is not a good guy, but... You sense that on him. It's very uncomfortable. The whole thing about the play itself. Oh, God. What it is that they're celebrating about the town is number one symbolism of what's wrong in Wingap. And this is another one of those many scenes where I'm just reading Emma and I'm like, this woman, she's just dangerous. Danger, danger, danger. I would stay away from people like that. Meanwhile, Alan snaps at Adora, who talks with Camille about her disappointment that Camille went against her mother as a teenager before finally informing her she smells ripe. And ripe is the title of the episode, and man, oof, accurate, but gross symbolism for everything that's been going on here. Uh, We're also learning that whether he believes it or not, Alan is being manipulated by these things Adora tells him. She is lying to him that Camille keeps coming to her with grisly details about the murders and that's what's making her upset and (laughs) Camille is a terrible person for doing these things to her mother. Finally at night while driving Camille has a disturbing vision of Amma dead in the shed. But again that never amounted to anything. I didn't understand that. I think that some part of Camille's brain (laughs) knew that this shed was an important location and maybe she couldn't make the distinction if that was from the trauma of her own childhood or the things that were happening now with the murder victims being found there, Amma's weird connection to visiting it. Like, how does that all piece together? And it was Mm. just kind of getting jumbled in her mind. Um, The same way as when it looks like Camille is going to hit Amma while roller skating. Yeah, what the hell? But then she keeps flashing back to her and Marion when they were roller skating and other instances. It's like one trigger pulls up a string of things that all come together and could be clues, but she can't quite sorted out. And neither can we. So we're halfway through now. We get to episode five, Closer, where workers begin dressing up the backyard of Adora's home for the Calhoun Day celebrations, as Amma discovers Camille's articles about the murders. Angry, Amma steals Camille's clothes in the dressing room when shopping for an outfit, and Camille is forced to reveal her scars in front of Amma and her mother. Weird family things going on here. Well, A... Adora is obviously doing this on purpose. She sees the dresses this woman is pulling out, the attendant. Right. And knows. It's going to show skin. Camille can never wear that. She wants Camille to reveal herself and be vulnerable and exposed. Emma, we're finally getting the first real taste of how little she can stand for even an ounce of attention. 
That's right. To be diverted away from her. But she has no idea the can that's going to open up until she sees Camille and now becomes, from this point forward, almost fixated upon Camille's scars and really kind of trying to take that as an opening to learn more about Camille. But this whole episode really could be the insight into Amma episode. Uh, There are multiple occasions where we see what happens when she's not the center of attention. So feeling badly, Amma presents Camille with a dress that she can wear and apologizes. Calhoun Day kicks off. Richard notices Bob Nash drinking heavily at the party, while Ashley confronts Camille for not including her in the article. Adora notices Camille talking with Richard and decides to take him on a private tour of the house, where she tells him Camille is dangerous. So you have all this tension going on. Bob Nash and John Keane, you know that's going to come to a head. You have Adora realizing that Camille is getting too close to Detective Willis, and she needs to find her own way to start manipulating him. Right, so this whole play on Camille is sick. You might not know this. She's mentally unwell. But we also get a very clear shot throughout that, and it's a good way of diverting the attention away from the focus point by having it be with Detective Willis. We're not really thinking about it, but we see the room, the pristineness of the bedroom, the ivory floor, the fact that it's been in magazines, and the only one allowed in there for a photo was Marion. Adora's good little child. Camille was never allowed in there. We see what happened when Camille went in there once and purposely disrespected the sanctity and got dirt on the floor. And that fan, that window fan. Movies like this love to just fixate on fans. (laughs) Well, that was also a thing in the books that this house is built and meant to be the way it is, which means we don't tarnish it with air conditioners. That was Adora's viewpoint. So even in the middle of the sweltering hot summer, all we have are fans. She has an order to everything, and it only goes the way Adora wants it to go. During the play, a fight emerges between Bob and John, and a frightened Amma flees, or so we think. The guests go on a search for Amma, but Camille finds her injured in the shed and brings her home. There, Adora coldly insults her daughter, and a distraught Camille flees, arriving at Richard's motel where she has sex with him. So I think it's apparent really quickly that... Amma noticed Camille's attention was being diverted in the middle of her big play. Her moment. And she takes it back by staging this. She was taken off to the shed. She was hurt. Yeah. Poor me. Let's refocus the attention. This party itself had so many dynamics, so many clusters of things going on from these groups of men who are drinking, having fun. They could be dangerous, potentially, or maybe they're just punks. To the groups of women that Jackie, of course, you can tell is the leader of. Where they're up on the house deck where they can see all. Gossiping. And they can gossip about all that's going on. Everything's what, heating up. Mm-hmm. The temperature is like rising. Yeah. And you can feel it. And I think they mimic that so perfectly. Like you said, it's amping up. The guys are getting drunk. They're making these comments. The women, but also by focusing in on Emma, that she's taking drugs. Yep, And you can see her spinning more and more out of control. And that's just sort of like the main image of what's happening in the atmosphere of the entire party. You got Bob Nash getting more and more drunk, more and more angry. You have Detective Willis finally looking like a detective, looking around, reading everybody until he fixates back on Camille. But I thought for sure he would figure something out at that party. I actually had a first amount of respect for the chief, who does seem to be doing his job at this party too. 
paying very careful attention. He is there to watch these people and see what's going on with them. I, there were times where the detective, to me, actually didn't really seem to be doing his job because he's publicly displaying affection for Camille for the first time at this party. That's yeah. what arises so many problems with so many people. He's so caught up talking to her and then talking to Adora later. I think he's missing a lot of those things that the chief is actually seeing. But that all kind of becomes irrelevant with Amma's staged production yeah. here, and that's how we end it. Episode six is Cherry. Alan blames Camille for her mother's illness and reprimands her for mentioning the dead girls. He threatens to kick her out. Flashbacks show Camille as a cheerleader in high school, during which her friends make nasty remarks about her period, or they think it's her period. Becca, her only black friend, helps her and notices the word cherry carved on her thigh. In present day, Camille joins her old friends for brunch and reconnects with Becca. Detective Willis digs into Camille's past and visits the psychiatric hospital where she stayed. That night, as Camille purchases liquor, she finds Amma, who invites her to a party. There, John and Ashley show up, but soon Amma and her friends drunkenly abuse the two, which caused them to leave. Amma convinces Camille to take Oxy and Ecstasy, and the two of them roller skate through Wingap. They return home, and soon Amma begs to come with her to St. Louis. The two pass out in Camille's bedroom while Adora watches on. This is another one of those episodes where I was very uncomfortable. Before the drug binge, we get introduced to Camille's friends as kids. So this is another opening. We're in episode six. They're slowly showing us her past. And we get to see that even her friends, quote unquote, were mean, vicious women. And it seems like this is around the point where the cutting started. She wasn't quite concealing it yet. They did notice the blood, but they didn't really know what it was from. There was sort of a question if Becca had figured that out, but you never see them talk about it. I'm wondering what the initial precipitating event was. We saw the assault that she witnessed, if you want to, I don't even know how to talk about that because she has different feelings, the perspective on what happened to her, but it seems like that happened shortly before that. So maybe that was the first impetus where this behavior kind of kicked off. This is one of those storylines where I was saying, I don't know what to think about because it doesn't lead to anywhere. Her friends don't lead to anywhere. Becca, who uh, it seemed like, I think next episode where they start talking more. This one where she goes to the party as an oh, adult. Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, maybe this is going to go somewhere. That never went anywhere. But I guess not all the storylines need to. No, I think the big reason they brought it up was as a parallel that Camille was actually part of this group of mean girls in high school, even though that's not really how she was, she still was not very nice to Becca. And now they cut over to Amma and her friends who are the new mean girls in town. And I think part of Camille, here's that regression again, wants to kind of get past that. And that's why she agrees to go to the party. We keep saying to ourselves, why is she doing this? Why doesn't she walk home? Why is she going with Amma to the party? Why is she taking drugs with her? Why is she engaging you still have that kind of like developmental issue that they're highlighting through the flashbacks that she hasn't totally worked through. I see that. I didn't even look at the parallels. Good thinking. And then we go into that night with Camille and Emma, and that's where I really felt uncomfortable. I was like, don't go, don't go. Something bad's going to happen. And they do this cocktail of pretty hard drugs. And the whole time I was like, is Emma going to kill her here? What's going to happen? We find out how influential... Emma and her band are, that they control this party, they control the social tone and feeling that as soon as Ashley and John get there, they are shunned to the point that they eventually wind up leaving. And Emma's a big proponent behind that. We saw the pictures that she was instigating on social media of John Keane. She's pushing that idea that he's responsible and he should be put out of the group. Then we got to see Ashley in her true colors again, 
we saw it seeping out, but now we really got to see it when she is asking Camille about her next article, am I going to be in it? And at that point, pretty much Ashley's out of the storyline altogether. Now, in this party, I just kept thinking, if I was at a party with these young kids, how weird I would feel. I'd feel like I'm sticking out like a sore thumb. They're going through experiences that I've already gone through. I know it doesn't. It's it's actually not that fun. (laughs) And you can sense that, right, on Camille the whole time. That's why it's so uncomfortable. And then when her and Emma leave, there are these bizarre series of interactions where it's the typical Emma trying to forge this relationship through manipulative behaviors mm-hmm. where Camille will be vulnerable, exposed, not quite herself. Camille herself starts slipping back into flashbacks of Marion, and you can see why she's engaging in this with Emma. Part of her wants to regain that missing sisterhood that she had with Marion. But Emma, I think, has an inkling that that's happening. Several times throughout the series, she says to her mother, to Camille, that she can never be Marion. She can never be that good girl. And thus she's forced to kind of go to a different mold. And it's at those times that she gets kind of violent and aggressive with Camille. She makes it be like they're playing, but she almost knocks her over. She hits her to the ground. She hurts her. There's an inkling that there is aggression and violence underneath Amma's behaviors that's not normal. And of course, we get at the end that Adora has been watching this whole thing and she'll play along with the game the next morning (laughs) that they ate bad food or whatever it is they wound up telling her, not that they were drunk and doing drugs and rolling in that way in the middle of the night. Oh, let's not forget what Emma whispers to Camille as she's falling asleep. Something along the lines of bad things are coming and there's nothing you can do to stop it. I think she even references her. She's going to do these things to you, meeting Adora. And that takes us right into Seven, Falling, where Camille wakes up to find herself in bed being treated by Adora. Meanwhile, Detective Willis continues his investigation of Marion and discovers she was actually poisoned by Adora, who likely has Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Under the pretense of medicine for her hangover, Adora similarly gives poison to Amma. So this is the beginnings of Adora trying to play it to Camille for the first time since her childhood. She wants to treat her as well. Yeah. Camille's not standing for it. But now we see her go harder on Amma, probably for that reason. You get the feeling that Amma has gone through these things systematically, but because of the amped up emotions and what's happening with Camille there now, Adora is pushing it farther than she ever has before. And throughout this episode and next, we'll see Amma really looking increasingly terrible. And terrifying. Eating at the table kind of reminded me of that scene in Hannibal when it's a TV show and he's eating his own brains or something. Yes. Oh, creepy. Now, this threw me off because, one, I didn't see it coming, which was awesome. But two, all these questions started coming up, which we've already discussed. Where's Alan in all this? Where is the loving housekeeper that seems to be the kind housekeeper that the kids love? Where is she through all this? And how does she not know? Well, and this is the first time that we really fully get the answer. Adora is poisoning these kids. She does have this sickness. It has been going on since Marion. When the detective goes and he speaks with this woman at the clinic, we get the full force of knowing that that's happened. This woman used to be a nurse in the hospital where Marion was taken repeatedly. She noticed something was going on, started asking questions, wanted copies of reports. We know Jackie was also trying to get that lab results testing, but this woman was repeatedly denied until the point where she was finally fired from the hospital. Her name was smeared. They made up rumors about her that she was a drug addict, and that's why she went and started working at this methadone clinic. 
And this is as good as she was ever going to get. If she pushed any more into it, she'd be out of that as well. So she was never able to follow up on it, but she kind of openly tells the detective that's what was going on. And now he knows for sure. Meanwhile, as the police search for him, Camille discovers John Keene at a bar where the two talk before leaving for a motel room and having sex. Soon afterward, the police arrive and arrest John. Richard berates Camille after seeing her in bed with John, ending their relationship. So we've talked about this pretty much at length. I mean, Camille, for the most part, knew that John was innocent. For some reason, she has to have that confirmation when she's talking to him. And he finally tells her he spouts all of the nonsense he knows the town is talking about him. The rumors are there going around why he would do this. But he says, I didn't. Of course I didn't. I'm upset because I lost my sister and I'm wanting to kill myself over it. And this is where they connect over that loss that she has experienced as well. And she says, you never really get over that. And that leads to the whole situation where the with them going back to the motel, the bad reaction of the detective, <laughs> the breakdown of that relationship. The first time Camille has probably been touched in so long, yeah. skin to skin. And you can see that physical response yeah. is just overwhelming. And how about that bar? First of all, that particular bar, I would never walk in. Very scary. The types of people there, how run down the places. But the idea of the <laughs> bar, I think is brilliant. If you convert a house, but... Um, much nicer house, you know, kept up into a bar where there's different seating areas. You can play board games. There's a fireplace. There's another room with books. That would be the coolest bar ever. Yeah. And I don't think it's meant to be scary. I know you get that kind of seedy undertone to it. I think it's supposed to show the real break in socioeconomic boundaries of Wind Gap. Mm. You have the upper class bar, if you will, which is still kind of dirty and whatever, but that's where respected people go, mm -hmm. wealthier people go. If you don't want wealthier to... Wealthier for that town. Right. If you don't <laughs> want to, or you're not able, or you're trying to hide, or you're anybody else who is shunned by that class in Wind Gap, you go to this place. Yeah. And it's, I think, more supposed to feel like a symbol of that side of town. And yes. these are the people, they stick together, they've formed their own bond, this is their own place, and other people don't come there. Yeah, and I didn't mean scary like scary movie. I meant if it was me and I'm walking into a bar and it's a new bar, I'm looking around, I'm gauging if this is a safe place for me to let loose, get a little buzzed, or is it going to be someone in there that is just looking for trouble with anybody? That's the kind of bar you don't walk into. And I think that depends if you're allowed to be there or not, if you're supposed to be there or right. not. And, you know, maybe that's a little questionable for both John and Camille, but they're getting away with it because I think some people do actually know who and what they are. Mm. Some of these people might be the ones that don't think John did it. They're just not going to say anything about that either. Why would they? So also in this episode, Camille learns of her mother's condition from Jackie and that Marion's body was cremated to avoid suspicion. This is a really intense interaction when she goes to see her and finds that out, the one person in this town she thought she could trust her whole childhood, who was looking out for her, has in fact been lying to her all along. She knew what Adora had done. She has become sick over it in her own way. She has a really poignant example of how and why Marion and Emma have fallen into this trap with her mother. When she keeps taking the drinks of the Bloody Mary and Jackie says, why do you do it? It's terrible. But every time I ask you, you take the drink because it's easier than saying no. Yeah. You want to please me. She spoke. That whole thing was in metaphors. 
And I think it hits home in a big way. That's also a difference from the books that she was cremated, Marion's body. They were not allowing Camille and the detective to exhume her remains. And I think there was a question of if they would even be able to pull anything from it at that point to test off of, but she definitely was not cremated. And after leaving in a hurry, Camille breaks down to Curry over the phone, refuses his plea for her to return to St. Louis, instead returning to confront her mother. And oh boy, here we go. Episode 8, Milk, the series finale. Camille returns home to find her family seated for dinner. They discuss John Keene's arrest. Emma is dazed and speaks about Persephone. Camille suggests Emma visiting her in St. Louis. You could see it all falling apart here. I could see so much emotion in Camille's face. This was a strong scene. Alan is actually kind of trying to step up and exert influence. They're going to sit down. They're going to have a family dinner. There's a lot of metaphor, obviously, to what Emma is talking about with Persephone walking between both worlds, being half in the underworld and half in the world of the living, and yet she doesn't really belong in either. We see just how far it's gotten with the poisoning, and I think Camille knows this could really tip over the end and take Emma's life if she doesn't stop it, so she diverts Adora's attention away from her by pretending that she's sick. Throughout that night and the next day, she allows Adora to take care of her, to poison her, and a lot, very quickly, we see she goes through a whole bottle that night with Camille. And this is when we start losing control. I didn't understand, well, I understood why Camille did that, to pretend she was sick. It was to save her sister. But I kept thinking she was going to spit it out once her mother looked away. Yeah, there was a different kind of plan being formulated in the book. It was slightly more thought out. After finding out for sure what had happened to Marion, she said, the only thing I can do now is make sure this doesn't happen again to Emma, and I'm going to need proof in order to put Adora away. So she's going to willingly put herself in that situation, be poisoned enough that she can then take herself to the hospital when they test her, They'll find out what's in her, and they'll be able to pin it to Adora. And she has a plan kind of for how she's going to get out. It doesn't involve Amma going and getting help. The show makes it feel a little more like she's flying by the seat of her pants. Yeah. She came up with that diversion on the fly because she couldn't stand what she was doing to Amma. And it really hinges upon her trusting that Amma's going to go and find Kansas City. Now, that makes for better TV, but if I was Camille, I would have texted Detective Willis, told him, come in three hours. No matter what, I'm here. If they don't let you in, come in. I'm here. I'm going to need your help. Before Adora takes her phone. Yeah. She doesn't take her phone till she takes the medicine yep. first. Well, and you can't tell me there is no way for her to get to any phone throughout the entire course of these events that are happening here. Well, physically, I, I think there's no way. At some point, yes, yeah. it deteriorates to the point that she can't even walk. I think psychologically, she doesn't spit it out. She allows it to keep going on because there is a part of her that wants this attention from her mother. She's wanted this her whole life. She wants to be cared for. The love that she's showing her is everything Camille has been looking for. Even though it's twisted and insane and she's killing her, she's bathing her. She's wiping her forehead. She's comforting her. She's even telling her stories about her own childhood. And I think she's also hoping maybe some of those questions she asks her will be answered honestly when she asks pretty much up front, did you kill Marion? But it all does get completely out of hand. At one point the next day, Alan warns Adora not to go overboard, but she continues. Camille urges Emma to escape, but she is stopped by Alan on the way downstairs and turned back. I wasn't sure if that was 
so that she wouldn't tell and Adora's spot wouldn't be blown up, or because he was kind of maybe happy that Adora had diverted the attention to Camille and away from his child. I think that was Amma. Yeah, and he could play into his denial this way. I'll bring you some ice cream. I'll be the good dad that brings you the cake you want and keeps you safe. Cake, yeah, not ice cream. We can see the sickness in some of the things Adora is telling Camille as she's tending to her. We talked about the story of her mother leaving her in the woods. Then she says, we've all had hard childhoods. At some point, you have to forget it and move on. Anything else is just selfish. I never meant you or your sister any harm. I only did what a mother does, worried, cared. Well, I think she believes that. She does. And this is about the halfway point of this episode. I want to stop here to talk about this sickness that Adora has, because I think it really starts to bring up a lot of questions from here on out and become confusing for people if you don't understand what it's about. So you have these two syndromes, Munchausen and Munchausen by proxy. Those are the colloquial terms. If you're talking about psychologically in the DSM, how are they classified? They're called factitious disorder. So that's people who affect a fake disease, illness, or psychological trauma to draw attention, sympathy, or reassurance to themselves. That would be Adora making herself sick. You also have factitious disorder imposed on another, where you make a dependent person appear mentally or physically ill to gain attention. The caregiver systematically represents symptoms, fabricates signs, manipulates tests, or purposely harms the dependent to take on the hero role in appearing to care for the sick child. This is a long-term mental disorder involving a breakdown in the relationship between thoughts, emotions, and behaviors, leading to faulty perceptions, inappropriate actions and feelings, withdrawal from reality and personal relationships into fantasy and delusion. So let's be quite clear. This person is not, in a strict sense, fully aware of what they're doing. They have had a break from reality. It's not like in their head, I'm killing my child. They are inventing these things or amping up these things that already exist so they'll get the attention and they're able to care for that person. You distinguish this from other forms of abuse and neglect purely by the motives of the perpetrator. And this is open to very different interpretations. There is controversy about it. I just wonder how the body, human body, has these disorders, all of them that we talk about throughout all of our podcasts. The brain. Yeah, yeah. It's, there's a lot of misfiring going on here. Basically, if you think about it, it's um, unprovoked or unplanned assaults on the child. Unlike with other kinds of child abuse, normally it's in response to a behavior. So the child does something, whether it's actually a bad thing or not, knocks over a carton of milk. Now the child gets abused for that behavior. This is not that. There's nothing in particular that sets it off except for the person's own disease, disorder that's going through their mind. Uh, With other cases, the caregiver may wish to harm the child out of malice. So let's say I, you know, beat my kid and then I attempt to conceal it by covering it up as an illness. That's totally different. So again, it all comes back to the motive. The motive with this Munchausen by proxy is to draw sympathy and attention. And they do so by getting a lot of other people involved too. Medical practitioners, doctors, nurses are unknowingly manipulated into a partnership with the mother, the parent, whomever, and enable it. If the doctors are unwilling to give the care that the person is seeking, the caregiver goes on to another, often doctor shopping. They maintain the child in the role of a patient because it satisfies their needs. 
So let's give you an idea of some of these statistics. The average age of the person affected being abused is four years old. The overall occurrence is quite rare, at least in the studies they've done and what they've been able to document. It's 0.5% of the population. So that could be much greater and we just don't know about it, but it's not a common thing. The mother is generally the perpetrator. In 76% of the cases in some studies show 93% as much as that. It's much more infrequently male guardians. In these cases where a male guardian is present, they're usually described as distant, emotionally disengaged, and powerless, playing a passive role by frequently being absent or denying the abuse. That's Alan to a T. Yes, it is. Well, by the time of diagnosis, when this situation is actually determined, they figure out this is going on with the kid, 6% of the children were already dead. Half of them had affected siblings with similar symptoms. And the most frequently reported problems included anorexia, feeding problems, diarrhea, seizures, asthma, allergy, vomiting. And that's just the physical stuff they're going through. The long-term effects for the children who do survive this are even worse. They may learn they're most likely to receive positive attention they crave when they're playing the sick role. So somebody like Amma now might grow up to have Munchausen syndrome and fake her own illnesses because she knows she's going to get attention for that. That's mm. what she's learned. They seek personal gratification through illness, which can become a lifelong and multi-generational disorder. Or some have avoidance of all medical treatment altogether due to the trauma. So they won't go to doctors or seek help ever because they're afraid. 30% of these individuals go on to become abusers themselves of some kind. So I know it's still a little bit muddled and confusing. There's people who don't even fully believe that this is a thing. Well, I didn't know it was a thing till this show. Oh, you'd never heard of it before? No. I knew of Munchausen syndrome, but not by proxy. Okay. Not doing it to someone else. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's very well depicted with Adora. And those lines that we were just talking about, I never meant any harm. I was caring for you. I was tending to a sick child. On some level, she really does believe that. That is her reality. She was already saying that about Marion as a baby, as a newborn. She was putting that narrative into her own brain. And Camille as well. Now, they don't necessarily want these children to die. But if that happens, like it did with Marion... That's an ongoing source of attention and sympathy for the rest of her life. That's why she keeps this room set up as a shrine still to Marion. People will continually tell her how sorry they are. She gets sympathy for having this child who passed away. You see her play that card often. Don't tell me about that. I've been through enough of my own situations. Remember what happened with your sister? And she pulls it out whenever it's needed, you know? Well, at some point during all of these events, Richard comes to check the house, but Alan turns him away. A little while later, he arrives back with Vickery and Curry to find Camille collapsed on the floor. Adora is arrested for poisoning her daughters. At the hospital, Richard tells Camille they are looking to charge Adora for Natalie and Anne's murders as well because the pliers in the kitchen matched those used on the dead girls. They also found Adora's supplies she had been using to poison her daughters, a mixture of antifreeze, prescription medications, and rat poisoning. And he apologizes to Camille. During this arrest, I just kept saying, why are they not even talking to Alan? Why are they not at least taking him into custody to ask questions to find out if he's part of it? It's still the terrible police work that's going on in the small town of Wind Gap. That's what should have been done for sure. 
maybe they wouldn't have been able to hold him to anything because there's no proof that he was an accomplice. But it is bizarre that he escapes all form of judgment. Well, I'm sure the whole town will judge him forever. Maybe. Who knows with the way that things work around there. We're obviously very upset with the detective for not doing more. Even if it does turn out he left and he went to get Vickery. How do you ever leave that house? Yeah. Seeing what's going on there, you, you call Vickery and then you go back in. No, I don't think that's what happened. I really believe that Frank came and got them and they all went. And bullied them into it, yeah. These scenes actually made for great TV. The tension during this whole time, watching Camille try to yell help, the music so loud, Alan opening the door just a little bit, telling Willis that they're sick. You know, it was just really good TV. And her, it seemed like on the brink of death as she's lying on that floor and the relief when she realizes the lights flashing over her head are the police car lights from outside. Yeah. And we do find out she was much more in danger because Emma had developed a kind of resistance to this medicine over time. The only reason she was showing such extreme effects is because she was getting more of it these past few days. But she was able to keep functioning on some level. I'm sure she still has a lot of physical health problems due to that. Camille, on the other hand, though, has not had any exposure to this and had so much so quickly, it really could have killed her. Luckily, they both make it out of there okay. This apology is sort of the end with Detective Willis. It's like, this was never going to work out. We're both making amends and going our separate ways now. And once released, Emma moves back with Camille to St. Louis. Camille writes her article... That was a really poignant moment we talked about with her considering if she has been transmitted some of this sickness. Does she care for Emma and enjoy it because she's kind or because she's like her mother? And I think that was a reflection of Emma pulling it out of Camille, needing that attention and Camille giving it to her. I don't believe Camille's going to end up being like Adora at all. I don't think so either, but I think it was a step in her own mental health to be self-aware enough Yes, that that's somewhere there and I need to know that and I need to check myself and monitor what's healthy and what's not had Emma been a normal child maybe that would have been a healing thing for both of them to move forward with Uh, unfortunately that's not the case the two of them visit Curry they have dinner the one night we see Emma has befriended a girl named May who comes with them there's a very tense interaction at dinner shortly thereafter May goes missing Camille is at home and returning a prop that was tossed in the trash to Emma's dollhouse when she finds a tooth inside and realizes the floor of the whole room, her mother's room, is made entirely of teeth. First of all, very creative. (laughs) And symbolic. Holy shit. Absolutely. So this is what she's been doing in constructing this obsessive, crazy house that she has control over for once instead of her mother, particularly her mother's room, particularly that pristine ivory floor that she is now recreating. And the last couple teeth that she's cleaned and hasn't had a chance to place in yet, Camille finds loose under the bed kind of popping out. And that's when she sees visually the whole thing is like that. And then you hear, don't tell mama. I'll never forget that line. Crazy ending. I I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Even a little bit of the perhaps supernatural tip of the cap in that right before Emma walks through the door, the picture falls off the wall that has Marion in it. 
it's like a warning yeah. for Camille that something's about to happen. Uh, they leave you not really knowing where that's going to go. Yeah. Do you think Emma's going to kill Camille at that point? I don't. No? I think Emma has too much emotionally invested in this relationship to want to hurt Camille. She needs to keep getting from her that thing that she needs that she's been getting from Adora or getting it in a different way from Camille. What she can't have is Camille telling anybody or blowing right. up her spot over what she's done. So in this post credit scene, there's a really quick series of flashbacks where they spell out for you in case you hadn't put the pieces together. You see Amma strangling Anne, Natalie, and finally May. I don't know if you can quite tell, but with Anne and Natalie, she had her roller pals, her girlfriends helping her. She did May by herself. You get the idea that even though they did help her with the others, it's been her doing the teeth by herself all along. So you do know that for sure. You don't know what's going to happen moving forward in the books. They do detail it for you that Emma is turned in and she gets put away for these crimes. So now Adora and Emma are both kind of serving time for what they've done. And Camille winds up moving in with Curry and Eileen for a little while. Okay. They become her family and she's able to start moving forward and seeing what a real family means oh, what it means good. to heal. That's good. What a way to end a series. But yeah, instead here, we just get the last image of Emma being the woman, woman in, in white. white. You know, I knew I liked this series this whole time watching it and all the things I said before, how it made me uncomfortable most of the time, which was on purpose. You had to push me sometimes to watch it. But this ending made it all worth it. Now, we did say there are a lot of questions left open at the end. We can go through some of the big ones. We never find out who Camille's father is. I don't think it's particularly relevant or that we need to know. The only thing is that it's not the result of Adora and Alan. Whatever sickness is kind of being passed on, she has some genetic link from her father, which is different, that maybe gives her some protective elements, some coping oh, skills that okay. she's not that she's able to not totally fall into those patterns. And that might be why her father left, because he couldn't be an Allen type. Mm -hmm. He couldn't be controlled and passive about it or disconnected. We can only hope, though, that he wasn't aware of this situation and mm. leaving Camille with the mother, because that would be terrible. I know there's been some speculation. Could it maybe have been the chief? We do see there was an odd relationship between Adora and Chief Vickery. I don't think it was ever full-blown sexual affair. No. I think there was an attraction, there was flirtation, there was a power dynamic, but that's about it. I think we would have seen a difference in the way the chief spoke to Camille, if that was the case. Mm -hmm. Like we said, there are some questions about Alan's complicity. How much did he know? The show goes a little further towards showing he knew more, maybe, than in the books. He was still deluding himself. He was still in denial. But he's definitely a part of this. As we said, does Emma wind up going to jail? Does Camille turn her in? I've talked about how the book ends. We never get the backstory on Curry, what was physically wrong with him that he was being cared for. We never find out what happens to John Keene. The last we leave him is in the police station where he's telling them, you're headed down the wrong road. I am not to blame for any of this. We never find out about the maid, and we never really find out about Jackie. But again, another scene that the TV show gives us of her kind of stating she's going to step up into this queen bee role. In the town, yeah. So if anything, it's um, slightly more elaborated here. Well, the fact that Jackie was going to see their mother, Adora, in the jail, that's weird because 
Jackie knows everything that was happening. She was the one that was trying to figure it out. You know, the whole background that we know. Why would she go and meet up with her? Well, this is why I say I've been frustrated with her because she is just as entwined in this whole sick yeah. kind of web that's going on. She has allowed herself to be captive in Adora's web. She doesn't like it. It's made her ill, but she hasn't made any great attempt that she could to get out of it. You know, if that means she's not going to be a person of status in this town or even a person in this town, period, there are still things she could have done and she chooses to remain as part of this anyway. And it looks like she's going to choose to maintain some kind of relationship with Adora and now be the new matriarch of Windgap. So like we said, due to the thematic things they were exploring, the first-person perspective, they do leave questions open in the TV show, but they do also expand some other things, the Calhoun Day developments, Camille stay in rehab, the Alan and Adora relationship, a little bit more of Detective Richard Willis. So there's areas where they have decided to kind of broaden the perspective, but then some areas where you just kind of have to accept okay, this is the story we're being told and we can just let our minds wander with where the rest of those things may go. Well, Jason, that wraps up all the episodes and it's going to take us into our rating. But before we do that, I just want to say we're going to get to some more information that we spoke about earlier with the self-harm behaviors after we're done with this. Let's start off with our playlist rating. Music was a big part of this series. So on a scale of one to 10 songs, What do you give Sharp Objects? I'm going to go with eight songs. The ending really did it for me. I haven't been surprised like that, well, since Game of Thrones. But besides that, (laughs) you know, most movies or TV shows, first season of Mr. Robot too, but you don't get it often and it was refreshing and, and I was actually, couldn't stop talking after the episode ended and I kept asking you questions like, oh my God, I can't believe this. And the smile on your face because you knew it was coming. You love doing that to me. (laughs) Did I give anything away? Not at all. Throughout the series? No. Because I was pretty good about that with Game of Thrones. You're very good with it. But I, I tried hard to, what I do in these circumstances, I try to remember what it was like when I was first reading it. So at each point that you're going through, each episode, I'm saying, who did I suspect at the time? What did I think was going on here? Yeah. And I put forth those ideas to kind of mix it up for you. It was so much fun, even though I knew the broad strokes of what was going to happen, seeing you go through that same experience that I had. And it was so much more expansive and just different to see it visually. The book was amazing. I would absolutely recommend reading it to anyone, but the TV show is a different kind of art form and it elevated the show in another way that I truly enjoyed. It makes me think about all the movies that were adaptations of books. And the fact that they have to cut so much out because they have to fit it under two hours. This is the way to do it. Eight episodes, about an hour each. Eight hours. They were allotted eight hours to get most of the story in. I think from this point on, that's how book adaptations should be. And I felt the same way about HBO's Big Little Lies that they did last year. I think it was the same producers, if I'm correct, for this show. Uh, The format just works for that length, that type of a story... A movie is way too short. Anything more than one season would be stretching it out to the point of ridiculousness. Yeah. This really, really works. I love Gillian Flynn's subject matter. I'm really upset that that's it for her books. Hopefully she'll Mm -hmm. write another one so eventually HBO can cover that too. Well, they could cover the ones that had movies and maybe they can just do it more in depth. 
Dark Places, mm-hmm. I would really like to see that go TV show. I don't know since it's been a big movie if they would ever do that. Right. But that was one of my favorites. Gone Girl, I felt they covered really well in movie format. I don't know that I need to see that True. kind of TV yeah. show. Agreed. I do have to say I still like Big Little Lies better because the middle was more fun for me to watch or more engaging. But still, this is right up there. It's all about the character development, right? That's when it shifts away from being so much about the mystery and the plot to let's learn more about these people we're talking about. And I think it maybe throws you a little with this story because they do set it up to be such a whodunit. And then you have to slow way back down and you're like, what's happening? Why is our focus shifting? Um, Yeah, Big Little Lies worked fantastically. I don't know if you know, there is going to be a season two. They're talking about that coming in 2019. Depending on our time schedules, I would love to do coverage on that, similarly to how we're doing here. So we'll keep you posted on that. But back to the ratings for everything I just said, in addition to the incredible acting, the artistic production and development by Valet, my love for the story in general, I am going to give this a nine songs. Ooh, up there. I really, really liked it. And for this series, our MVP, or in this case, our MVW, Most Valuable Wingapian. And we just made that word up. Yes, we did. Why not? We asked our Clatchers on Twitter who their sharp objects Wingapian is, and we gave you guys four choices. Camille, Adora, Amma, and Curry. Now, this is hard. We have to explain this to people who don't listen to our coverage normally, how that works. We don't mean the character you liked the most. Sometimes that winds up going that way, but it's more like who is the most important, the most influential, who drove the plot the most, who is interesting to watch, all of those things kind of rolled in together. So sometimes it's a good guy, sometimes it's a bad guy. And then we often tend to kind of give an honorary Mm -hmm. to a sidebar character. So let's go through first what the poll results were. Coming in at fourth place with 0% was Emma. I think that's a reflection of how much they hated her as a character, which you're supposed to. She did a wonderful job with that. Absolutely. Tied for third place and second place with 9% is Adora and Curry. Oh, I am shocked. Me too. That Curry didn't get more. Um, I definitely would see giving points to Adora for sheer character intrigue. Yeah. Acting. Well, I guess Curry, there wasn't enough of him until the end when he saved the day. He was so influential, though. There was like this slow hum throughout the series that we open up with him sending Camille on this mission. We establish their relationship. Anytime she's in a point of crisis, she turns to him. It's the backbone for her that keeps her sane, and he winds up being the one to save her. So I really enjoyed him for that. But no surprise, coming in at first with a resounding 82% is Camille. Well, Amy Adams... You know, she did amazing in this series, and she was the main character. It is definitely warranted for her to get that much of a percentage. Absolutely. So, Christina, who's yours? I, too, have to give it to Camille for a variety of reasons that we talked about. The acting of Amy Adams, the character development, the portrayal, the artistic portrayal of the things she's gone through, but also how we see that delivered. Yeah. The questioning of her. Um, even when we question her, still feeling empathy, hoping that she's able to overcome her growth through this entire situation. And we think maybe coming out on the other side of it okay. It was just amazing. She has so much strength. 
and so much to like and be interested to watch. Uh, she is one of my more favorite literary characters. See, for me, this is going to be a first. I'm normally right on par with the Clatchers, but I'm going to go the exact opposite. I'm going to go with what they gave 0% to, Emma. Yeah, I can see that. Now, I hated her as a character. I hated her as a person. I would never want to be around that woman. But story-wise, what she was going through, the way she's able to manipulate and the way she was manipulated, when she was on camera, she took control. I remember all of her scenes. Very memorable. So I got to give it to Emma. I could see people going with Adora or Emma. I mean, we said, how do you even put them in supporting roles? Okay, you have to say Camille's the primary, but you can't just call them supportive. The three of them were central to the storyline, and from that point, indistinguishable from each other in their secondary importance. Um, yeah, I wish we could give awards to all three, <laughs> but I'm glad that you gave one to Amma, and we are going to give our honorary to Curry. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that does it for the show coverage. This has been really long already, I know, but I don't want to shortchange the conversation about psychologically what's happening with the self-harm on the side of Camille. We talked about the Munchausen by proxy, but this was another big piece of the storyline. First of all, credit to HBO, who recognized the sensitive nature of the show's content from the beginning and included an end card in the premiere and every subsequent episode that pointed viewers to Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. They had a website with resources. They had a 1-800-HOTLINE, a text crisis line, and we want to put that out there too. My profession, my world kind of revolves around mental health. So I would be remiss to talk about this or to tell you the resources that are out there. If you or someone you know is considering self-harm or experiencing suicidal thoughts, if there is any shadow of a question in your mind, there is no reason to wait, to wonder, to not do it. Pick up the phone, call the hotline or text. It's so easy. You can text H-O-M-E, home to the crisis text line at 741-741, and we'll put that in our show notes too. So what was it like to actually portray this? Amy Adams talked to The Hollywood Reporter and told them the scarring on her body was created daily by makeup artists who glued prosthetic scars to her body. She said, I had to stand naked because it was head to toe, every inch of my body. There was a mirror right there, and I had to confront myself, and I'd stopped working out to play Camille because I thought, She's not going to be toned. It's going to be annoying if we see her naked and she looks like me in American Hustle. <laughs> Amazing. And you can tell that. I mean, for as gorgeous as Amy Adams is, and her body still looks rocking, you can tell she let it go a little bit so it would be more realistic. You can tell they put makeup on her face to make her look a little more haggard. I appreciated that it seemed real. But at the same point, they weren't trying to exploit it or sensationalize it. In talking about writing this, Flynn says, I wanted to write a character study and hid that inside of a mystery. I tricked people into reading about women and violence and rage and what that looked like in three different generations of women. The novel explores the cyclical nature of self-harm as well as how trauma recovery can look incredibly different from person to person. There's a series of triggering events that pushes Camille to drink more, flirt more with self-harm, make poor decisions related to her family, her love life, her work. She is a serial cutter, a fact that she states without theatrics in the novel. She carves words into her skin until everything but her neck, face, hands, and one single spot on the center of her back are covered. 
Some months before returning to Wingap, she undergoes treatment at a rehab center. In the show, the alcoholism is often put forth more as her primary negative coping mechanism, but we still do see the situation with the cutting. Now, this is another prime difference I forgot to bring up in the books, except for the areas you can see her hands, her feet. She had left this one spot kind of like at the top of her back where it meets her neck with a perfect circle, Mm -hmm. untouched, and it was going to be for the last word she ever wrote on herself. And so she wanted to give it a place of importance and some kind of bigger significance. This is actually the vanish scar that in the show we see on her arm. After saving the spot for a decade, she created vanish in that spot on her back right before she went into rehab. But she also flirted with the idea of allowing her mother to cut that into her in that one spot. So it was really intense and heavy. When it comes to self-harm, I know this is something that not all people completely understand. Unfortunately, it's very common. In 2013, about 3.3 million cases of self-harm occurred. It's most common between the ages of 12 and 24, and more common in females than males, with the risk being five times greater in the 12 to 15 age group. While it's rare in childhood, the rate has actually been increasing since the 80s, and it can occur in the elderly as well. Even in captive animals, especially birds and monkeys, they're known to participate in self-harming behavior. Yep, our bird recently started plucking his feathers. We took him to the vet, and basically they were saying he's in heat, um, and he's not able to mate, so he's hormonal, hormonal, (laughs) and he's uh, harming himself by pulling out his feathers. Yeah, and I guess it can be pretty common with birds. That's one reason these hormonal fluxes, you can't spay or neuter a bird. So unfortunately, they have to go through all of that, even if they're not actually mating, which makes it worse. But it can also happen for psychological reasons. If the bird is anxious, upset, they start to do that as a way to relieve those feelings and then become addicted to the behavior and will continue with it. Very, very similar psychological reaction to what happens with humans. The main point of doing this is not always and a lot of times not simply to hurt yourself. There are other motivations underneath it. I mean, let's look broader for a second. In many cultures, self-mutilation is incorporated into religious practice and social rituals. When culturally sanctioned, it serves to purify, heal, or restore order. There are shamanic sacrificial rituals where self-wounding is followed by self-healing, It's believed to magically purify or heal the community. It is only considered pathological when it's idiosyncratic or lacks aesthetic value or ritual significance. So when it's not part of those types of situations, it's a self-destructive act with intentions towards hurting oneself, but also symptom relief. So what are people trying to get from engaging in this? Relief in the areas of the following. These are the big ones, at least. There's probably more. Number one, sexual anxiety. That's Achilles, our bird. Mm-hmm. So that can be a number of different things. Somebody might be confused or rejecting of their own sexual identity. They might perceive their sexuality as dangerous. Let's take situations where children are sexually abused. Coming into sexual maturity is not a good thing. It's a scary thing. So we don't want that to happen. Um, sexual arousal is thought to be wrong or threatening. So homes where kids are brought up to think that's a bad, dirty feeling, they shouldn't have those feelings. Mm. 
It's a defensive way to block that by using pain or even punishment or as a substitute for sexual stimulation. So read Achilles. Number two, to control aggression or hostility. So as a last resort to protect others from harm, the person's own body kind of becomes a substitute target for aggression. I don't want to act out and hurt you, so I'll hurt myself because I need to get it out somehow. Or sometimes as a mean to gain attention or a form of manipulation. Unfortunately, a lot of people look at it as being that. They will very often say the person's just trying to get attention. Sometimes it's a reason, but that's a very, very small percentage of people who cut. Number three, as a self-purification ritual, there's this hope of restoring the individual to good standing with a figure of authority of protection, whether that's a mother or your God or whatever. The individual can split themselves into good and bad parts so that their bad self can be punished and their good self restored. Or sometimes where there's other mental illness, this is a way to release aggression and restore internal order. This makes sense to me. I can get the badness out of my blood and then I can heal symbolically and physically. Some people turn to exercise for that, which is obviously healthier, mm-hmm. but it's the same same, same psychological yeah. concept. Yeah. Number four is to restore a sense of reality. So a sensation of pain can draw an individual's awareness back into their own body. People that feel chronically depressed or numb Let's say I can't feel anything at all, so I'm cutting just to feel something to show myself I'm alive. Uh, but also people that have difficulty with reality orientation, what's real and what's not, this is a way of separating themselves from the environment, from other things. Do you think if VR gets really big and it's like the internet where most of our life is in VR, people are going to start doing that to be like, am I in real, yes. real life right now? Unfortunately, I do. Wow. That's... You know, think about somebody that's having hallucinations and delusions and can't separate what's real or what's not. It's like pinching yourself out of a dream. Uh, Also, people that have a chronic lack of sensory stimulation. So think about kids that grow up with parents that don't hold them, don't touch them. They don't know where is that boundary between myself and others? What is a healthy sense of physicality and feeling? And so the scars that they put on their body almost become a second skin, a formation of a physical boundary that they can see and touch. And finally, number five, trauma. So some trauma victims compulsively seek out painful experiences in an attempt to master the trauma. By hurting themselves, they're reminding themselves of the painful experience. They're somaticizing it. So whereas trauma inside your mind can be really hard to wrap your head around and come to terms with, if you can actually see it on your body, a physical representation, sometimes that can make more sense. There's the pain, there's the wound, now I can heal it. And thus, it's also a representation of their survival, their ability to withstand and move on. Now, this is just surface. We're not going too deep into this. There's so many reasons we could bring up how this happens to people, like what they went through as a child to bring up these self-harm behaviors. It's just cursory. It's like a brief overview. Yeah of self-injurious behavior and what that looks like. And mainly here, we're talking about cutting, but there's all different kinds of things, uh, burning, pinching, hitting oneself. There's any number of ways that can take shape. And we also just went over the five main reasons why people do that 
what they're trying to alleviate, but of course there's more. I just wanted to give you kind of a better look into people will often say, why, why does that person do that? Yeah. Why is Camille doing this to herself? It's got so many layers to it, the trauma she's been through, what she's trying to work out, punishing herself, not taking it out on other people. I do have to mention that the words are not a common thing. I guess that's the one area maybe you could say we went a little sensationalized with it. We tried to make it more literary. Yeah, I think so. It, it just tends to usually be marks, but it's not unheard of either. Well, Chris, way to end it on a downer. I'm sorry, but, <laughs> but this show kind of is a downer, right? I that's at least, true. I at least wanted to get some education and information. I feel we're not doing justice to the story here to not talk about yeah such a major, major issue. And again, to see how that was explored through Gillian Flynn's novel and the HBO miniseries, I think they did a fantastic job of covering some truly difficult topics, not shying away from that. So bravo to them. <laughs> really, yeah. really well done. And I know because we covered this in a one episode, A, it's extremely long. Sorry about that. We do not normally run this long, but we wanted to make sure we got to everything. We were very excited to talk about it. And B, we didn't get a chance to do as much feedback as we normally do because it was a little more time limited. But if you have responses, as always, please feel free to email, write in, tweet us. And of course, like always, thank you so much for being part of the CKC crew. If you like what you heard, follow us on Twitter at CKC Podcast. Facebook, Coffee Clatch Crew, and check out our Patreon. Go to coffeeclatchcrew.com, click on Patreon. There you'll get over two days, I think we're approaching three days now, worth mm. of content, bonus episodes, and movie reviews. So check those out and become a part of that elite crew. And don't forget, if you're a Patreon member every month, you get a chance to win your choosing of any CKC gear from our gear store. Shirts, mugs, posters, we have a new shirt that just came out. It's an homage to one of my favorite movies, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It says, so long and thanks for all the fish. <laughs> I love this. Also, if you're wondering, this has been a little bit of atypical scheduling for CKC. For the most part throughout the year, we do our big shows where we do weekly episodic coverage, Game of Thrones, Mr. Robot, Westworld. Each week we put out the podcast covering that episode. We took a short break from free coverage. We are back with some sporadic releases as of late. Yes, we released Jurassic World, The Fallen Kingdom. We, at this time, by the time this is out, we released a portion of our Patreon bonus so you can get a taste of that. So that shows you what both of our tiers on Patreon look like. The third tier, which is movie, and the second tier, which is bonus. And this bonus is in regards to dogs. It's a lot more happier than this podcast itself. And it's how dogs became to be pets, what they're thinking by their body movements, and so many fun little anecdotes to the man's best friend. Moving forward, there's also probably going to be some changes. We will stick with some of our primary shows. When Game of Thrones comes back in 2019, we will be covering that, the next season of The Magicians, and hopefully whenever in the heck Mr. Robot decides to drop, though that's all still very up in the air. In the meantime, that means we have some time. From now through December, we will be looking at another TV show to cover or something else that can have a little bit more regular podcasts put out on our free channels. We'll let you know about that. And these last three podcasts we have been releasing on all of our channels. We hope you don't get annoyed by that. They're not all going to be like that. We're going to do what we normally do. We'll have a channel itself for that particular show 
and always releasing it on our main channel, just Coffee Clatch Crew. So sorry about that. We just wanted to make sure everyone who is a follower of ours had a chance to see these episodes. Yeah, because we haven't been releasing frequently. We weren't sure where you were subscribing, what you were listening to. Just a reminder, we're still here. The episodes are going to be coming back. If you like what you hear, please go on any one of those or on our main Coffee Clatch Crew page on iTunes and leave us a rate and review. Thanks again to Shutter.com. Remember, go to Shutter.com forward slash podcasts. Use promo code CKC for 30-day free trial of the scariest movies in the world. Shudder believes there's safety in numbers. Don't be left alone in the dark. That's Shudder.com forward slash podcast. Promo code CKC. Till next time, this round's on me. This round is on me. Please hang up and try again.